0: Well, we're back. Uh back on the air and uh thank God for uh well, not thank God, thank our top value perhaps for uh <laughs> the fortune that allowed us to have uh our Telos system working again. And now on the air with us is uh Stefan. Uh welcome to the show, Stefan.
1: Well, thank you so much. Sorry about the technical issues, but I'm glad that we could connect.
0: Yes, you're on the air. Amazing. All right, great. Well, you heard our intro. Is there anything you'd like to contest about yourself? No,
1: actually, I was was kind of horrified when you said thousands of of podcasts and articles and, and videos, but I just sort of totted it up in my head, and I am, in fact... Over a thousand, and that's kind of chilling. Yeah, well, uh, but, well, uh, don't but that's have, okay. You have that's like okay, eight
0: hundred yeah. podcasts and four hundred some videos. Am I correct? I, I've just I think
1: it's about one hundred and thirty videos and about uh, eighty or ninety articles uh, and about four books. But. It's a lot. You know, it's a lot. It's like, you know, when you play a video game for too long, and you yeah. look back at sort of six months of your life. That's sort of how <laughs> I think sometimes about the last two years. But so, I'm so, certainly glad to have the material out there.
0: So do you think people are going to talk about you like in legend and be like, oh, he made millions and millions of podcasts and articles for all the world to hear? Are people going to sing about you or...
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'll tell you what I think though. I've been trying to think of a good tagline to put together for like T shirts and mugs and so like that. The only thing that I can really think of that describes the show accurately is Free Domain Radio, where quality is quantity. That's really the all of <laughs> the best that I can nice. come up with and I think that's no, quite that's true.
0: A, that's very good. I would buy that shirt for for no more than fifteen dollars though. Uh <laughs> right. not Canadian, US US.
1: Right, well, they're getting <laughs> closer and closer now, so it's not such a big deal anymore.
0: <laughs> oh, oh are you trying to are you trying to compete with us? Whose Fiat money is better?
1: <laughs> right, right. Your Monopoly money is worth more more uh, houses than my Monopoly money, right? right.
0: All right. So, Stefan, tell us a little bit about Free Domain Radio. I, I looked at the free, Frequently Asked Questions article you have posted on Blogspot, and you say that, uh, quote, Free Domain Radio is a philosophical conversation based on empirical logic and the Socratic method designed to help you bring the maximum freedom and happiness into your life, end quote. Uh, maybe you could better uh, elucidate FDR's meaning for our listeners and uh, how empirical logic and the Socratic method can actually lead to greater happiness.
1: Oh, sure. let start off with the easy questions. Um, well, there's, there's kind of two problems or two challenges or two schools of thought when it comes to intellectual rigor or human happiness, right? So, so on the one side, you have abstract philosophy, which is sort of the metaphysics and epistemology and all that kind of stuff, which is the nature of the universe, the nature and study of truth, and, and to some degree, ethics. That's all very abstract, and, of course, I studied a lot of that in school and, and enjoyed it. I mean, it's good intellectual exercise. But it's kind of, in terms of living your practical life, it's kind of like learning Elvish or a Klingon, you know. <laughs> it's a good intellectual exercise, but it doesn't really translate a lot into the here and now. Some People have these ideas of, of philosophers, of these sort of thousand-yard-staring, bumbling people who, can't, you know, <laughs> who might be able to think about the nature of the universe but can't find their shoes. On the other hand, you have the psychological tradition, which is around uh, actualization, uh, authenticity, uh, honesty, uh, frankness, and, and intimacy, and all that kind of stuff, and, and uh, sort of lowering your own psychological defenses and trying to process your relationships more rationally. And I've tried to sort of find a way to bridge these two worlds so that we have a theory uh, that I think is quite good about abstract ethics and philosophy, but at the same time, and this is what makes it sometimes a very exciting and occasionally volatile <laughs> conversation is, we say, okay, well, if these are our abstract ideals, in you know, truth, honesty, virtue, integrity, and all that kind of stuff, how is it that we're going to actually bring those out, bring those to bear in our own life? And so that's really the challenge that I've tried to bridge with the website, with the podcasts, uh, so that we've got a good definition of ethics that's not based on religion, that's not based on patriotism, that's not based on mysticism, that's not based on democracy or, or, or collective notions, but is based on reasoning from first principles, and once you get that greatest abstraction of ethics, how is it that you bring it to bear in the daily decisions that you have to make as a human being, right, to sort of maximize happiness? So that's, uh, that's really the purpose of, of the website, and that's why we talk about everything from, you know, the, the sort of free domain theory of ethics all the way through to dream analyses, right, because as we're trying to bridge the philosophical and the psychological to produce a kind of actionable plan about how it is that you're going to be able to live your life and, and be as happy as possible.
2: So for those people who are listening, going, what the hell is he talking about virtue? Uh, heck, heck, yeah. <laughs> the, what, what? Can you give a, like very briefly an example of, um, uh, you know, how how you can enact these uh, ideas of, you know, and why why is it good to to derive these um, ideas of virtue and morality from first principles instead of you know religion, family, democracy, patriotism.
1: Well, it's a very good question, and of course it really is. I think the most important question in life is the question of ethics and and how it is we can be good people without becoming enslaved enslaved to sort of good, right, where good becomes duty towards everyone else and and so on. Um, Clearly, of course, the core uh, ethical commandment at uh, Free Domain Radio is the donation of both money, children, and (laughs) kidneys to Free Domain Radio. So that, of course, would be number one. Uh, Of course, from that core sort of premise, we derive a lot of other premises, which is uh, Steph is the master of time, space, and dimension, all those kinds of things. All right, let me try right. again but be a little more serious. Um, ethical theories, to me, are, are pretty much the same as scientific theories. So you don't have to use the scientific method to understand the world, right? You don't have to use experimentation. You don't have to use empiricism. You don't have to use logic. You don't have to do peer reviews. You don't have to have reproducible and reversible experiments or anything like that. Y- in order to understand the universe, you can talk to a, a hand puppet Uh, you can pray to a god, Uh, you can do uh, a shimmy dance and hope that the answer comes to you, Uh, or you can use the scientific method, which is logical, empirical, and and rational. And in the same way, if you have a theory about how human beings should live, like what is what I call universally preferable behavior, which is not just, I think it's nice if you exercise, but universal behavior that is considered good, like don't kill, uh, don't steal, don't rape, uh, and all that kind of stuff, And, and If you're going to have any kind of theory about how human beings should behave, then that theory needs to follow the scientific methodology, which is the first thing is it has to be rationally consistent. It has to be internally and rationally consistent. So if I'm a mathematician and I say that uh, I've got this massive complicated proof of of Fermat's last theorem or whatever, and right at the beginning my basic assumption is 2 plus 2 is 5, then you know that the theory is not going to work, right? So, and you don't have to go out and test it, and you don't have to go through my 500-page proof or whatever. You just know. It's not because the premise is, is incorrect, and that's, that's true of all science, right? If you say, if you have a theory about gravity, and you say that, you know, gravity uh, depends on the weather, which obviously it doesn't, right? Then you're not going to have a successful theory of gravity. So in order to have any kind of successful theory of ethics, what you need to do is you need to have something that is logically coherent and consistent uh, to all human beings uh, at all times, in all places, right? So, for instance, if you have something which says, don't murder, right? Self-defense is a wrinkle and so on, but let's just go with don't murder, which, you know, pretty much I think people are mostly okay with. Right. Well, if you're going to say don't murder is, is a good moral rule to have, then it needs to be universal. You can't just be, don't murder when you're in Kansas, but the moment you cross the state line to, I don't know, The Wizard of Oz or whatever borders Kansas, then you, are, uh, you can't then say, okay, well, now it changes. Now you, you must kill, right? So you can't, for instance, say, don't murder, but if you put on this green uniform, suddenly you have the right to murder, and this is how we know that there's ethical problems with something like the military, right? So you have to have consistent premises. You can't say don't steal, unless you're part of the IRS, in which case you get to initiate force against citizens and take away their property. And so it's just, if you're going to have any kind of universal moral prescription, it has to be logical and universal. It can't just be made up. So in one country, you do one thing, and if you're a policeman, you do another thing, and if you're a soldier, you do another thing. If you're a prison guard, you do another thing. It has to be universal and consistent. You can't just make up different moral rules. Based on costumes, uniform, location, preference, gender, race—it has to be common. Well, I and if you I... can't, sorry, if you can't, if you can't sort of get over that first hurdle, then you don't have a valid moral theory. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. to no, it's uh, okay. To I
0: didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, I guess, I guess what needs to be clarified here, though, is, is why, when you say logical and universal, you're distinguishing yourself from, perhaps, Kant, who would say logical and universal. Because I think uh, what, you be, what you're trying to say is that things are conditionally universal, but only conditionally on the fact that people in the IRS are just like people who are not in the IRS, and that them putting on their little IRS hat doesn't give them the right to coerce. Would I be correct in saying that?
1: Well, sure. I mean, if you put a saddle on a horse... It doesn't turn it into something else completely. It's just a horse with a saddle on it, right? And if you put a uniform on a man or you give him a business card which says IRS, you're not changing his fundamental nature as a human being. Now, there are people who can be accepted from universal moral rules, but there has to be an objective biological difference, right? So somebody who has an extreme form of mental illness, like certain forms of paranoid schizophrenia, men who are in comas or, or children who are five years old, where there's an objective biological difference, then sure, just like a biologist can say, well, if a horse has stripes, it's probably a zebra. Uh, you, can, you can have sort of different moral rules if you have objective differences, the, way in the same way that biologists classify different animals. But when you're talking about ye old average, adult, intelligent, independent, free-will, free-thinking human being, you can't just make up moral rules that are completely... I mean, you can, you can can do whatever you want, but they're just not going to be valid.
2: Yeah, this reminds me of just a general problem with uh, different philosophies that some are focused on the individual, the rational philosophy. I mean, when I think of objectivism, I think of a lot of focus on the individual, and others are focused on the collective and surrendering one's will to the collective. And I think that's the main difference between rational philosophy and mythology or, you know, religion and uh, patriotism. It's, it's like the fundamental focus on the individual before any abstract collective ideas are, are put into place.
1: Well, I think, I think that's an excellent distinction. I mean, I think, I think that you're quite right. When you put a whole bunch of horses together, you get a herd, right? But a herd is just a conceptual tag within our own minds that we use to describe... A herd of horses, right? If you take right. away all the horses, you're not left with a, the dust of the herd. <laughs> you know, if, if, you, if you take away all the horses, there is no herd. Like if you take away all the trees, there is no forest. And the question is, in in philosophy, and, and I think you've identified it in terms of ethics, is the primary um, uh, operant, is the primary mechanism, or the primary thing that you need to deal with in terms of ethics, is it a concept like a country or a society or a religion or even a family? Or is it an instance, like an individual? So if you have a concept called horses, is the concept derived from the actual nature of each horse, or can you just throw whatever you want in there? Or does it somehow the concept exist independently of what's in it? Is the concept like a box? You take everything out of the box and you still got a box? Mm
3: -hmm. Or is it
1: more like the idea of a forest? If you take away all the trees, there's nothing left. I think in a rational philosophy, and this, of course, is the scientific method, which is to say that rules are derived from instances. right? So if you've got a rule that says all rocks fall down, you can't just make up a rule which says, oh, except for that red rock and that other rock, and you know, they're going to fall up. Because the rule is all rocks fall down. Anytime there's a conflict between what happens in reality and your rule, it's your rule that has to give way. right? So, so I think you're right. And it all has to do with whether concepts are primary or whether individuals, uh, the individual things are primary.
0: So actually, I guess this would lead into, uh, into why individuals are primary, and uh, I guess this is where you might get into, uh, you know, the primacy of existence, but then followed closely by consciousness and how consciousness is a proof of existence, and likewise how the consciousness is in control of uh, his or her own actions and so forth. So how would you define the individual?
1: Well, from a moral standpoint, the individual would be, for me, defined at a biological level, right? So the individual is... You know, a human being, you know, not small and chimp-like and covered with fur and not large and abstract with a beard living in the sky, right? So just a human being, which a biologist, it's funny, you know, biologists have no problem classifying human beings, but ethicists seem to have an enormous amount of difficulty. I think it's one of the ways in which we can see just how far the ethical sciences lag behind the physical sciences. But uh, yeah, the individual is some guy, right? Some man, uh, some woman uh, who has, you know, reasonable cognitive faculties who uh, uh, is, is, is exists in the world, I and mean, the dead don't really have any ethical status. So yeah, it's just, just some alive guy, some alive woman who's in the world. That is uh, the, the thing which you are describing. That is the entity which you are describing when you are making moral rules, right? So if I have uh, some terrible disease that causes, you know, in the Dr. Strangelove way, it causes my arm to sort of lash out and hit people, <laughs> uh, and I can't control it, then we don't sort of say, well, your arm is evil and needs to go to jail, right? So it's, it's the conscious individual that ethics, I think, really, really needs uh, to deal with. And biologists have no problem defining human beings as that sort of aggregation of individuals, but uh, ethicists seem to think that somehow we change our natures if we put on a uniform or join the government or something like that.
0: So uh, I guess this would lead us, uh, I guess in a very broad sense, it leads us to your political philosophy which is anarchism and uh as i mentioned earlier you are an anarchist and this really seems to confuse people lock up your daughters yeah lock up your daughters at least in the sense (laughs) that it's like uh (laughs) commonly understood that anarchy means chaos but uh you say in the faq uh the term has been degraded through mythology to mean a world without rules, usually garbled in post apocalyptic outerwear and riding in a well armed motorbike. So I guess what that what you're trying to say by your definition is that anarchy does not mean no society but no government. So would you agree with the assertion and like how and how would you convince others to look past the scary or extreme parts of anarchy or even the mythological parts like the Mad Max leather and the shotgun. Right.
1: Well unless that's what you're into, right? In which case I'll definitely uh, you know put anarchy in those clothing in that clothing. But I mean, the, the way that I try to get people to understand that anarchy is not no rules, right? Anarchy is not no rules, right? Anarchy is, is, um, uh, is, uh, is that rules must be negotiated between individuals. See, when you have a government that can tax you uh, whatever it wants uh, and, and it, it, it sort of in debt the future generations, when it can print any kind of money that it wants, uh, when it can declare war and go and bomb any country that it wants, that, to me, is anarchy, like in the traditional sense of the word, in the way that people usually understand it, like, you know, terror, confusion, chaos, madness, and so on. If you look at Weimar, the Weimar Republic in the 1930s or the fall of Rome or the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, or even most of the Soviet Union, there was a system where there were, in fact, no rules. And you can see this now in the U.S., right? You have eminent domain and a seizure of any kind of property that may be even remotely connected with what might be loosely defined a drug crime. Uh, you have no rules, right? I mean, no human being at the moment can be sure in the world anywhere that his property is his property, because the government can choose to take it away in the form of taxes, tax increases, uh, seizures, uh, whatever it is, right? And of course, we say, well, but those are rules and and so on. But of course, uh, it, it's been well proven that the police will plant drugs on people that they want to kind of get into trouble, and so we currently live in a situation where we have a small group of people called the government who can do anything they want and we have to pay for it both in money and in blood in the form of of war and that to me is is real chaos you don't know what's coming next you don't know how the debt is going to be paid off What's the u.s. now forty trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities i mean two hundred thousand dollars for every working man woman and uh, man and woman i mean then that to me is real chaos where you just don't know what's coming next in your society you have no control over your government they can do whatever they want that's chaos, and it's only shielded by the fact that the government has such overwhelming military force that we just obey. Right? I mean, <laughs> you're not going to sit there and say, well, if I buy two Saturday night specials, I can take <laughs> on the U.S. military, right? So you say, well, they have such overwhelming force that I have to obey them, and that obedience is considered to be law and order, exactly. but it's not. On the face of it, yeah.
2: it's order. And that, that it's made order, me think... It's,
1: it's, it's order, like, if you beat the hell out of your kids, they'll be well-behaved. I mean, they'll be suicidal, but <laughs> they'll be well-behaved, right? So, if they're dead, uh, they're the best-behaved, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> for a while, right? Then they hit their teenage years, which is sort of when the government runs out of money and things get a little haywire. But what I try to do is, is to help people to understand that you don't need a central authority with lots of guns in your life, like just you as an individual. You don't need a government with lots of guns pointed at you to make your life work, right? So I say to people, you know, people say, well, you've got to have you know, central authority and so on. It's like, well, how did you get your job, right? Well, you, you got your job, you applied, or you started a company or something, and you went peacefully, and you, you know, offered your services. or How did you pick up your last girlfriend or your last boyfriend or both, depending on your tastes? Well, you kind of, I don't know, put your best foot forward and tried to be attractive tried to be charming. And, and there was no force involved. There was no violence involved. Why is it that you go over to your family's house for Sunday dinner? Is it because they're going to shoot your kneecaps off if you don't go? No, of course not. You go there because we hope you want to. You, yeah, you we You feel hope. guilted or whatever, but for the most part we hope it's because... You enjoy it. When my wife and I have a disagreement, oh, wait, sorry, that is an example of a central authority, so that's a little bit. <laughs> but uh, no, you, you sit down and you negotiate it, right? So the amazing thing is, and this is how I try to get people to work empirically, everyone says, well, society can't work without centralized violence. And so I say, but your society, right, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your kids, your, your whatever, your teachers, that all works without centralized authority. So why is it that what works for everyone individually, in terms of their own personal lives, which is negotiation, non-use of force, and so on, why is it that it works so well individually, but somehow when we move to a bigger aggregation of human beings, the exact opposite rules will apply? It's like a like biologist saying, well, a horse is, you know, quadruped with, I don't know why, I'm, a shiny coat or something like yeah. that. And then it's like, well, yes, but if you get 500 horses together, uh, suddenly they're covered with feathers and they can fly. Well, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever works for you individually, and I've never met anybody who said, oh, yeah, no, I got my job because I held the kids uh, hostage, right? (laughs) You know, I get my income by shooting people. I mean, it's not how it works. I don't see how we can say that it works really well at an individual level for there to be no centralized coercive agency like a government. But then, boy, you get a bunch of people together when it's even more complex. And suddenly, we need the exact opposite of what works on a personal level, and that that's never made any sense to me. And I think that that's uh, that's something that people can can find a way to anarchism, recognizing that they themselves are already a stateless society.
2: When when you said that um, real anarchy is in is in uh, the Weimar Republic or the Soviet Union, that that really made me think. People are so comfortable just psychologically accepting rules as long as they're abstract and unjustified. When when someone tries to rationally explain to them, look, um, you don't you don't need an authority figure telling you what to do. Um, you make your own decisions every day when you pick what to eat, uh, what to wear. They they all of a sudden they they get these psychological defense mechanisms telling them, well, no, we need law and order. And it, <laughs> what's law and order? It's defined by by people who are fallible, just like you. And why is it that when they make a law, it's more reasonable than? You
0: know, when you make it for yourself. When you have, like, the omnipresence of a state, I guess you'd imagine that it would be built into people's mode of thinking, you know, their, their paradigm that a state needs to be there. I mean, right. I, I guess that's why the, the concept of anarchy is so violent to some people because... Because it's, it's like it threatens their
2: religious beliefs, too. I, I mean, know. if God isn't absolute and doesn't make all the rules, then the state isn't absolute. And, and vice versa, if the state isn't absolute, then God isn't absolute. So it's, it just threatens a lot of values that people have just deep, deeply seated in their, in their psyche, I think.
1: Well, I think that's quite right. And I, I think that this is sort of where some of the personal aspects so of the, the, um, the tagline for the website at com, is the logic of personal and political liberty, right? So it's, it's pretty clear to me uh, that, uh, you know, uh, potentially ferocious and independ- uh, an intellectual force that I may be, I am not going to uh, overthrow the state. I certainly don't advocate doing it violently, and uh, I'm not going to talk people out of all these illusions by the time I take my big old dirt nap at the end of my life. So the question is then, well, how is it that you're going to become free in your personal life? One of the core aspects of any rational ethical philosophy, I think, is the idea that there's no such thing as unchosen, positive obligations. And what I mean by that is, I can't just say to you, hey, you know what, you owe me $1,000, right? <laughs> and if you don't pay me, I'm going to shoot you. That's an unchosen positive obligation. I mean, if you borrow $1,000 from me, that's one thing. Then you've chosen an obligation of repaying it, assuming you have a contract or something like that. But you can't just make up obligations for, uh, for other people. Uh, and, of course, that's the fundamental thing around government, right, that you're obligated to, to pay your taxes and you're obligated to obey the laws, even though you haven't voted for the existence of taxation, even though you haven't voted for... Uh, the laws, and yes, you get to vote for the occasional sap uh you know hand puppet of the lobbyist that comes along every four years, but uh, as anarchists are uh, f- fond of saying it's funny that no matter who you vote for, the government always seems to get in and of course that's that's the the, the core issue with that, but um I really think that it's important uh to sort of for for people to understand uh when it comes to this kind of stuff that you can 't just have these opposing rules right so I was uh, arguing with this woman the other day, or I should say debating in a positive and friendly manner, but I was <laughs> debating with this woman the other day who said, well, yes, I think that, that we we need to use the government to take care of the poor and the old and so on, right? Because, you know, that's virtuous and that's moral and so on. And I said, well, you realize that it's using violence, right? Like if I want to take care of the poor in some different kind of way, right? Maybe I want to go and teach them, or maybe I want to start a company and hire them, or or maybe whatever. Or maybe I just want to put my money in the bank so that somebody else has the capital to go and buy uh, to go and start a company and hire the poor. I said, but you're recognizing and you're, you're advocating that there's just one way to, to help the poor, and that's give a bunch of people guns and have them tell everyone else what to do or get shot, right? And, and that's not a productive thing. She said, yeah, I understand that, but I still think it's a good way to do it. I said, well, if that's a good way to make decisions uh, in society, then by the sort of logical laws of ethics, you can't just say it's only good for poverty, right? And I said, well, how would you feel then about this? You have a ministry of marriage. Because, right? you know, marriage is good, and you know, kids are good or whatever. And you have a ministry of marriage, and the way that you do it is all women go and sign up. And the government then chooses uh, who it is that they're going to get married to. And uh, if they don't uh, like that too bad, right, they can always go and, and uh, you know, every couple of years they can vote for maybe a, a different husband if they don't like the one they've got. But they can't vote to not have that as a system And so, you know, and if the woman doesn't marry the man that the government tells her to, then she gets thrown in jail, and if she resists, then she gets shot. Obviously, that would be completely immoral. But, of course, it's like what you were saying about the divisions that people have in their minds. Somehow, that's an acceptable way to deal with poverty, but it's not an acceptable way to deal with something like marriage. And, of course, again, people get very hard-pressed explaining actually why uh, there would be such different ways of, of dealing with problems.
0: Well, it's uh, 44 minutes past the hour, and we're taking phone calls at 305-348-3575. Uh, any questions or comments you have will be greatly appreciated. Um, okay, so as you were talking about, you are just talking about your ethics. Uh, I guess uh, the next big question is, why are these ethics binding? Why ought someone to follow these logical or rational rules?
1: Well, I mean, that's an excellent question, of course. And nobody has to. Right, As I said, you don't have to follow any Uh, ethical rules at all, right? I mean, just as I say, you you completely, you don't have to eat well, you don't have to exercise, you don't have to use the scientific method, you don't need to go to the doctor when you're sick. But mm, it's suddenly been my observation, and you can certainly let me know what you think. It's been my observation that no human being, it seems to me, is able to act without some kind of self-justification. I mean, you never get a war declared in history where the guy just says, you know what? I don't like these foreigners. I'm going to go and shoot them. Right? <laughs> That's never how it happens. There's always some huge story, and this is all the way back from Hitler with, with Czechoslovakia, and Hitler with uh, Austria, and Hitler with Poland. It was always, well, you know, the, these, these, these these darn Czechoslovaks are, are causing all these problems, and the Sudetenland Germans are crying out for help, and they're being oppressed, and we're going to save our brethren. And you see, of course, the big nonsense about Iraq. You know, they had, uh, they had long-range missiles, right, that went 112 miles rather than the 100 they were allowed, which certainly did not do anything to threaten you know, the eastern seaboard of the United States. But you get all of, this, uh, the, all of these justifications. It doesn't seem to me that human beings are able to act without some kind of self-justification. Even the worst people in the world will say that there was a justification that's ethical for what they did. So from what I've seen, if you can get human beings to believe that something is moral... Like, you know, the draft, right? I mean, it's Second World War, or Vietnam, or whatever. If people believe that the draft is moral, or people believe that soldiers are moral, or policemen are moral, or paying your taxes is moral, or supporting this, that, and the other is moral, if they believe that using violence to solve poverty and sickness and and, uh, and so on is moral, then they'll go along with it. it okay, I mean, uh,
0: Stefan, I hate to interrupt you, but we do have a phone call, so uh, let's see what
1: uh,
0: Hello, you're on the air.
1: Uh, I don't want to be
0: on the air. Oh, uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Oh, wow. It appears that that pickup of the phone call dropped Stefan. I'm very sorry, Stefan. You're going to have to call us back. (laughs) Apparently, we can't run two phone calls at once. Well, uh, so uh, what's your take on uh, what he just said then about the whole binding force of ethics?
2: Well, I think what he was trying to say was that human beings just respond to morality naturally. And um, that's why it's important uh, to define morality in a rational sense because we have no choice but to use morality and i'm not sure i mean maybe he has a point but it seems well we'll have him answer that sorry about that stefan uh, see another
0: problem with our telephone system
1: <laughs> i guess you can only have one call right so... yeah well,
2: we two
0: lines but one call it makes no sense but excellent now <laughs> you can this a call it
1: five number do you want me to call that instead
0: no that's good this is great all right
1: did we did we get the question Oh, no, nah, no question.
0: <laughs> no question. He didn't want to be on the air. Yeah. It was just uh, a question, maybe for the station.
1: But anyway, oh, oh, as,
0: we, as we continue,
1: um, sorry, let me just uh, sorry. To, let me just, I'll, I'll be re- very rapid. Just sort of finishing up this idea is that uh, it's my belief and my observation that human beings are run by ethical theories. Whatever we believe is right, we will do. And so, I'm not particularly worried about people who decide not to follow ethical theories. What I'm most concerned with is getting the right ethical theory out there. And then I believe, as surely as when you spin the wheel of a supertanker, society will go that way. Ethics are the most fundamental and powerful uh, ingredients in decision-making within individual and collective uh, human life. So I think you just define the right ethics and keep working at the problem, and society just changes because everybody uh, uh, needs ethical justifications for what they do.
0: Oh, well, it appears that you're making sort of a psychological argument, but uh, I guess, I mean, and obviously that's what it has to boil down to. It has to boil down to some sort of believable biological story. But I guess uh, at the same time, don't you, I guess you'd have to support non-contradiction as one means. So that if you choose not to participate in ethics, or if you, rather if you choose not to act ethically and think about your decisions, then you're not entitled to any sort of ethical treatment at the same time.
1: Well, I think that's true, and I also think that recognizing, by recognizing that human beings have the capacity to be evil, to act immorally, to accept completely bad and wrong and destructive ethical theories, because of that very fact, we can't have a government, right? It, if human beings were perfect, then maybe we could have a government, but then of we course wouldn't we wouldn't need, need a government one, right? Right? Need one, yeah. any more than we'd need ethical theories. I mean, if people never got sick, we'd never need doctors, right? So the fact is that human beings do like power, Human beings do like to take things from other human beings. Human beings do like to offload the costs of what they want to other human beings. Because human beings have the capacity for evil, we can't have something as powerful as a government in human hands because it just corrupts everything that it touches.
2: Yeah, it's funny. The the government always condemns monopolies and tells us that they have to protect us from monopolies. The government is the monopoly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's always amazing how people make that argument, you know. In order to cure this headache, I think a guillotine is in order.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I, think, I think this refers to something that you said in maybe one of your podcasts, which is that some, some humans uh, are inclined for evil. And uh, the problem is when we have government, which is supposed to control evil, we're kind of hoping that we just get lucky and stick the right people in there to do the coercing for us and hope that they do it with good spirits.
1: Right, Right. And of course, what kind of human beings want to control the government? What kind of human beings want to control the 700 U.S. military bases that are overseas? What kind of human beings want the keys to uh, nuclear weapons? What kind of human beings want to be able to rip from people's wallets hundreds of billions of dollars a year at the point of a gun? Uh, It's not you. I don't think it's me. Uh, And and so because you have a government, people say, well, we need a government because there's bad people in the world that, that we need protection from. But, I mean, and I accept that there are bad people in the world, but where do people think those bad people are going to end up? Right? I mean, they're going to want to be in the government because that gives them total control and power over other human beings, uh, which they would not have if there was no government.
2: So I guess then the next um, doubt I would have, if I was listening, I would say, well, then what's the practical solution? I mean, if we chose, let's say, to all adopt the rational philosophy and disarmed ourselves, disarmed the government, that is, Uh, how would we prevent uh, just being invaded by an immoral, tyrannical government and uh, subdued to their will?
1: Well, I mean, that's an excellent question, of course, um, uh, as is the question which is sort of related, I think, about how are disputes going to get resolved in the absence of a centralized authority like the government? Well um first of all the government doesn't resolve disputes the government just orders people to obey it right so you don't really have you know it's like when your mom comes in and you and your brother are fighting and it's like you both go to your rooms. So, you know, it doesn't matter to me who's right or who's wrong you spoke uh, i mean that's how the government deals with stuff so it doesn't really get resolved the government also is not very good at defending people i mean <laughs> that's a pretty fundamental thing i come from you know i was born in ireland and i grew up in england and my my father's side of the family is, uh, is British and was heavily involved in the Second World War. My mother's side is German and was also heavily involved in the Second World War. So I've done a fair amount of research, actually written a novel about all of this. And uh, if you look at, you know, the appeasement and, and what happened in the 1930s, uh, the government is really bad at protecting its citizens. I mean, the U.S. has this amazing, uh, you know, it's got all the natural resources on the planet. It's got two oceans on either side. It's got peaceful um, neighbors to the north and south. And yet every single uh, time uh, the U.S. Is, uh, is, you know, at war with someone or there's a cold war or there's terrorism, right, the U.S. is not doing a very good job uh, of its protecting its citizens. So the first thing that I would sort of suggest is that when you look at the hundreds of millions of people who were murdered in wars and also by governments, uh, certainly over 300 million and probably closer to 400 million in the 20th century alone, that's not a very good track record for protecting people. Right. The second thing that I would say is that with the advent of nuclear weapons, invasion has become a non issue uh, no no country that has nuclear weapons has ever suffered from an invasion why because if you have nuclear weapons you can kill the leaders of whoever is invading you right and and suddenly now that leaders are you know a subject to the same kind of uh, threats that soldiers in the front lines have always been they seem to be pretty good at not declaring war anymore so why has europe not had a third world war because they've all got nuclear weapons right so Uh, You you will get proxy wars that are fought in uh, other countries like Korea and, and Vietnam and so on, but you don't get countries that have nuclear weapons getting invaded. That's how you knew that Iraq never had any weapons of mass destruction because you just don't invade countries that have those things. And so a free society, a society without a government, yeah, there would be some, you know, there'd be like 20 nuclear warheads that would need to be maintained at the cost of like 50 cents a person per year, but that would eliminate the possibility of uh, of invasion from other countries. It Just doesn't happen historically.
0: Okay. Well, before we move, I mean, uh, I guess that really, do you consider that a full layout of your principles, or maybe you want to tell us a little bit about uh, how rela- uh, your podcast on relationships and how you can apply reason and the philosophy to your personal relationships?
1: I would love to. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm sensitive to your guys' timing and if there are any calls or when we need, next need to take a break, what's uh, their what's schedule?
0: Well, uh, well, you can go ahead and give us a brief summary of that in just a few minutes, and uh, then we're going to have to take a break.
1: <laughs> brief summary. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. It's you know, a thousand podcasts, whatever, so uh, I'll do my best. Well, the whole point of all of this, of course, is to end up in, in a situation where you can be free in your personal life right? So one of the things that I talk about in my podcast related to this question of no unchosen positive obligations is that this doesn't just mean the government and the taxes and all the things that you can't control in your life. It actually means all the things that you can control in your life. And those are things like guilt, uh, obligation, duty, I mean, and not to the state because you don't have any control over the state, but in your personal life, right? So if you don't like your parents, you know, and again, <laughs> this is controversial as all get up and maybe this will spark some calls, you don't actually have any obligation to see them. They have an obligation to care for you because they, when you were a kid because they had you and that's a chosen positive obligation. But uh, as an adult, uh, you don't actually have any obligation to your parents or, or to your siblings or to your extended family, aunts and uncles. you were just born into that, right? The same way that you're born into a country. It doesn't mean that you have obligations to people. If you love them and if they love you, fantastic, that's great. But the way that we turn this whole question of virtue around is by rejecting unchosen positive obligations in our personal lives, right? That's how we make the world a better place, is refusing to reward people who don't treat us well with, you know, loyalty and, 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 and uh, guilt uh, actions and so on. So, you know, if you don't like your parents, I mean, the way that I talk about it is, you know, certainly go and talk to your parents and say, well, I don't like when this or that happens or I didn't like this or that when I was a kid and talk to them, you know, be open, be honest, be vulnerable. And then if it doesn't work out, you can walk away. I mean, there's a cult called the family, which is kind of at the core of a lot of the problems that are in society, wherein we just have to, quote, love and obey our family, which then translates into loving and obeying God and loving and obeying the state. But it really all starts at the core with the family. That's our parents are our first experience of authority, and of course, we will never be. Even if we're in jail, we will never be in the kind of power disparity with anyone else that we will, that we were when we were kids with our parents, right? So that's why I spend a lot of the podcast focusing on familial relationships, focusing on good parenting habits, and so on. And my wife, who practices psychology, is, uh, runs an office out of her house, runs a clinic. Uh, she she's the one who really helped me sort of focus in on this this aspect of one's personal relationships being a mirror for the kind of society that we live in and how we have so much more control over our personal relationships. That's where we should really focus to bring the maximum amount of freedom to our life.
2: And I think it's really easy for someone listening to, st- to this to say, yeah, I agree with him, but um, I got a good relationship with my parents. I mean, yeah, we only talk about the weather and sports, but, you know, we get along. They're fine. And, and, I mean, I think that's the, that sort of complacency is what prevents a lot of people from really accepting these ideas. They think, yeah, sure, he, I mean, what he's saying makes sense. It's obvious. But, you know, I don't have that relationship with my parents.
1: Uh, and I, I certainly do get a lot of that. Uh, and, of course, this is where some psychological sophistication is important, right? So uh, if, um, <laughs> if I say, you know, you need to have a rich and meaningful relationship with everyone in your life where they get to speak, you get to speak about what's really important to you. And, yeah, you can spend some time talking about the weather and so on, but, you know, relationships expire in the desert of chit-chat and, you know, (laughs) innocuous, nothing, you know, parlor talk. Uh, You've got to have something where you really talk about your values, where you really talk about what what life means to you, what's important to you, what fundamentally juices you as a human being. And so when people come and say to me, well, I, I get along okay with my parents and this and that and the other, well, there's a couple of ways that you can figure that out, right? I mean, I'm very much for empirical and scientific knowledge, but I'm also very much for uh, instinctual uh, knowledge, right? I mean, which we, we have the gut brain and we have dreams and so on, which help us uh, to figure out how to navigate through the complexities of a pretty relativistic cultural environment. So, you know, it's, it's easy, right? So when the phone rings and it's my wife calling, my heart leaps and I'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled, I'm overjoyed, I can't wait to talk to her. Um, and so I just ask people, okay, it's like the phone rings and you look down at the call display, and it's like, Mom and Dad, right? How do you feel, right? And the people like, oh, you know, I'll let the machine get it. I, I don't have time right now, whatever, right? But yeah. it doesn't mean that everything is, you, you know, cringe. horrible, but it means that this is not a relationship that uh, is, is uh, really causing you a lot of pleasure. There's that kind of gut feel that we get when the phone rings, and he's like, oh, Mom and Dad, good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, if it's not something that you look forward to, if it's an obligation, if it's a, you know, well, it's... It's Mother's Day, and I have to go. Actually, this is Father's you know, Day weekend. And...
0: Sorry? This is Father's Day weekend, so.
1: Father's Day weekend, or of course, July the 4th. Another one oh, where we're going. I'm sorry, bigger. I just made that up.
0: I... Yeah,
2: that was a few weeks ago. Well, that, just,
0: that just goes to show how ignorant I am of family affairs. <laughs> but uh, I guess, how much does the, the oppression element tie into this? You know, like, I mean, sometimes it's just a relationship can be boring. But I mean, at what point does a relationship become outright destructive?
1: Well, uh, I, I think that the boring relationships, um, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm an out-and-out out atheist and materialist, so I don't think we have a soul. I don't think we get anything later, and like, we don't go any place after we die. Right? We, we go to the same place that we were before we were born, which is like no place. Right? So because of that, I'm not willing to live a life where I, I am consumed and waste time in, in boring and habitual and dull uh, relationships, right? I, I, I want to. I'm not saying you know, let's all go skydiving every day, but there has to be something that is is gripping and enjoyable, and and, and I can be enthusiastic about in my relationships. I don't consider boring relationships to be a value. I think that you need to, if you, if you're not you, but if you're playing it safe and you're not talking about the things that really matter to you and you're just kind of going through the motions, then you need to get that relationship, you know, off the couch. <laughs> you know, you need to get it into a workout room and get it get it exercised. Or you need to get rid of it. I mean, you just can't live. Uh, it, it sort of numbs you. And, of course, uh, you wouldn't go to a party and find someone who bored you and then start a long-term relationship with them, right? I mean, <laughs> unless they were really hot or whatever, right? But, and then it wouldn't be that long-term. But, I mean, you wouldn't. If you're just some guy, you go to some, some party and there's some guy droning on about how he loves nothing better than to read books about accountancy on the weekend, mm-hmm. you wouldn't sit there and say, great, you know, let's have lunch every week or whatever, right? So uh, given that that's not what you would do with your friendships, I don't think it's reasonable to say, that you should do that with your familial or personal relationships. As to your question of when a relationship become a, becomes abusive rather than just boring, for me, that is a very very specific place and a very very specific point, uh, which I think is important to to at least you ruminate on whether you agree or not. I think because human beings really want to be good, I think when when somebody who has power or authority over you uses ethical arguments to make you do stuff, which is not good, right, which is not universal, which is hypocritical or whatever, right? I mean, the, the classic example is a you know, parent who, who hits their kid saying, don't hit your brother, right, <laughs> just that kind of nonsense, right? So when, you, when your parents use rules, uh, use your, your desire to be a good human being, which I think is pretty much inbuilt to all but the basis of sociopaths, when your parents use your desire to be good to control and bully you, Right? Then I think that's pretty corrupt and that does you a lot of harm. And an innocuous example is, you know, maybe you've got some bristly, warty, bad smelling, unpleasant grandmother when you were a kid, and your mom's like, you know, be a good boy, go and kiss your grandmother. A good boy loves his grandmother. A good boy wants to go and kiss his grandmother or whatever. Well, that's taking your desire to be good and just making you like into (laughs) somebody who has to obey orders. And that kind of desire to have you obey arbitrary. Authority, uh, or because it's your parents who would feel anxiety if you said, but "I don't want to kiss grandmother; she smells like mothballs and death." Right? I mean, whatever it is, it's your parents' discomfort about that. They then translate that into moral rules that you have to follow, um, and that I think is pretty bad. I mean, that, that's where relationships run into real trouble.
2: And and it seems innocuous or insignificant. I'm sure people are listening to this saying, "Oh, what a baby! Uh, what what does it matter? You're just kissing an old lady." And 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 it usually is this kind of just these petty obligations that your parents force you into just using moral justifications. But the, the fundamental thing is that there's no reason why you should feel compelled to do them, even if, if they are insignificant.
1: Yeah, and they're never insignificant because it's always part of a pattern.
2: Right, right. You exactly. know, I mean,
1: it, it's never just, well, my parents were really interested in my thoughts and my welfare. But, boy, when it came to grandmother, it was yeah. it's always <laughs> part of a pattern, right? It, you work from the innocuous stuff, and you have to be patient with it in yourself, because I agree with you, it seems ridiculous. Ah, I was just kissing grandmother with one second. Why does it matter? But it really right. does matter, because it matters how it is that you end up getting people to do what you want in your life, right? So you can, you know, if your kid doesn't want to kiss his grandma, you sit down with him and say, well, how come, and what do you think, and this and that, and you talk to the grandma and say, you know, here's a breath mint, and (laughs) maybe get that wart looked at, whatever, right? I mean, there's ways that you can negotiate that respect the the feelings of everyone involved, or you can just sort of bully and dominate your kid and, and deal with it that way. And it's that latter part that lays the foundation for, I think, people's unconscious adherence in an irrational way to power structures like the state and, and the church and, and patriotism and so on. It's just, well, I just have to do what I'm told, otherwise people are going to get mad at me, because that's always the unspoken thing, right? If, if you sort of have to go and kiss your grandmother, uh, it's always because if you don't, your parents are going to get mad at you. And that sort of fear and obsequiousness, uh, I think is pretty gross, but it's a very, very common way of getting kids to do stuff.
0: All right, great. Well, we're going to take a quick break uh, at the top of the hour. So, uh... We'll be back in a little while, and hopefully we'll open up the discussion a little more to uh, more contentious issues other than Stefan just being the prophet of the radio. <laughs> right. All right. Well, so we'll see you in a
3: little bit. Programming on WRGP is made possible by a public service grant from Zoom. To show support for the local music and art scene on the campus of Florida International University, Zoom is proud to be a sponsor of Fallout at PS14, featuring MC's Intifada, PFM, 7 Star Recognized. The event will also feature the opportunity to sample and register to win a free Zoom player. Fallout will occur on Sunday, June 24th, beginning at 8pm at PS14, located at 28 Northeast 14th Street in Miami. For more information on Zoom, visit Zoom.net.
0: Listen to your roots. Listen to yourself. Listen to the
3: sounds of cultures that respect the earth. Madre Tierra, the show that offers much to discover and much to learn. Every Sunday from 1 to 4
0: p.m. With me, your DJ Liz Marie, bringing you the best indigenous and popular music from across the world. Only on Radio FM, where we air your music and your
2: heritage.
1: Imagine a friend has just told you they were diagnosed with a mental illness. What would you do? Awkward, isn't it? But what's even more awkward is, if you're not there for them, they'll be less likely to recover. Mental illness, what a difference a friend makes. To learn more, go to whatadifference.org. This message is brought to you by the Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad
3: Council. Before
1: snapping. I would like some milk, hey. Tune into Electro 101 every Tuesday night from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Here on WRGP, Homestead, Miami, 88.1 and 95.3 FM. Radiate FM.
0: They're going to jump out of trees. They'll go down the slide, head first. They'll make parachutes out of sheets. They'll balance on things that are impossible to balance on, like the back of a couch. They'll run with sharp objects. They'll climb things that won't hold their weight. They'll put their fingers in places where they could get smashed. They'll drive their tricycles down steep hills. They'll bounce balls off their faces. They'll step on each other. They'll jump on each other. They'll invent whole new ways to put themselves in jeopardy. But one of the most dangerous things kids will do happens while they're sitting perfectly still. Kids who ride in a car without a booster seat are much more likely to suffer serious or fatal injury during a crash than kids in boosters. But amazingly, 80% of all kids who need them aren't in them. After a toddler seat and until they're four nine, boost your kids and don't let them down.
1: Go to boosterseat.gov to learn more about the importance of boosters. A message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council.
3: Tired of that watered down hip hop on mainstream radio? Tune into Super Sounds with your name, JB. On WRGP, Homestead, Miami, 88.1 and 95.3 on your dial. If you can't get it on your radio, log on to WRGP.org. That's Radiate FM FIU Student Radio. I'm bringing you the super, 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 super From around the planet, taking you back and moving you forward That's your man Jigga the JB and that's Super Sounds Every Monday night at 10 Make sure you're there
2: Hey dad What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open
1: Here, let me try Yeah, it's stuck all right. Anything? Now watch. If you take your palm like this and smack it on the bottom right here, you can get it open pretty easily. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have
2: to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1 888 200 4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.
0: This song again? How do they play any rain? other songs in the album? <sighs> yeah. Meh.
2: There, that's more like it.
1: Radiate FM, we play the other songs on the album.
3: Want to know who's got next to hip-hop? Tune in Saturday, 1 to 4 p.m. on Radiate FM for the newest exclusive hits and street anthems presented by yours truly, DJ Main Event, a.k.a. Anthony to the S. Playing hip-hop from across your street. To around the world And for the ladies A little bit of that Smooth r and For my international people That dance hall Dub, reggae Whatever else y'all want Right here Radiate FM All exclusive Grind Time Radio Remember the name
0: We're back, and you're listening to Radio FM, student radio. Uh, what? Oh, sorry, Stefan, are you there? I sure am. Oh, my apologies. Well, we're back, and it's Toronto calling, I guess. So uh, I guess we wanted to move on to a more open-ended part of the discussion. If you felt that you've uh, laid out as much as you'd liked of your, uh, of your holistic world philosophy... <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, now that I've done it in 45 minutes, I can't imagine why I have so many podcasts. It's, uh, it's a baffling to me. But yes, absolutely. Let, let's go open-ended.
0: All right. Well, so uh, before we move forward with our discussion, I guess about more specific things like that troubling is odd issue, let's talk about the elephant in the room, Michael Moore. <laughs> he, he recently uh, released the movie Sicko, which he uh, yes. claims is an inside look at what healthcare is like for Americans compared to that of the Canadians, uh, UKians, <laughs> French, and the Cubans. So. Uh, well, since you're from Canada, why don't you give us uh, your take on the movie Sico?
1: Well, I, I have seen it. Uh, I do. I think Michael Moore is an excellent, excellent polemicist, and there's a lot to be learned from him on, on how to communicate passionately uh, about ideas, I think. So, you know, the uh, cred for where, where credit's is due. That having been said, it's kind of not anything to do with rationalism. It's kind of not anything to do with ethics or philosophy. So, for instance, if you, if, you, if you go and interview people who've won the lottery and you say, do you think the lottery's a good thing? Well, of course they're going to say yes, right? So if you go and interview people who have had significant medical issues, whose medical uh, expenses are covered uh, at the point of a gun through taxpayers, then, of course, they're going to be pro the system, right? So... Uh, it, to me it's it's not anything it's, just, it's completely obvious now it's entertainingly done and he's a, he's a good uh, good performer a good writer but uh, yeah you find people who've benefited hugely from a system and uh, they're going to like that system you might as well go to uh, to the people who you know the, the sort of party uh, leaders in the Soviet Union in the 1970s who had their dachas on the black sea and say what do you think of communism and they say it's great you know i love it you know and the unfortunate thing is you talk to the people in the gulags uh not so good right so uh the the challenge that he puts forward that i think is a false dichotomy is a the system in the us is a, a free system is a, is a market driven system which it's not and b that the system in canada uh is is, is efficient and productive and and so on uh, of course in in a more than 50 cents on the dollar of healthcare money is spent by the government the government has control through the FDA of the release of new drugs, which is completely horrendous. I mean, there are some beta blockers which are supposed to help people with heart problems that have been available for 20 years in Europe that are still not available in the United States It's killed 60 to 70,000 people, right? I mean, that's just one example. It costs such an enormous amount to get drugs through the FDA. You can't get a hold of experimental drugs even if you're dying and want to. Uh, and, and because it costs so much money to get drugs approved for human use... Only you know, basically, uh, pills which uh, help uh, male uh, erectile dysfunction <laughs> and cancer drugs. Like only the real big ones are dealt with, and people who have less common ailments don't get any particular help. Uh, the um, uh, the amount of lobbying that is done uh, for the government to pass legislation that is preferential to the pharmaceutical and insurance industries uh, is prodigious, right? So this this recent uh, 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 p- uh, you know pills for old people. I can't remember what it's called. The uh, uh, the pills for old people bill uh, has increased the cost for old people, and lobbyists spent you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, to make sure that they got to write the bill, and then of course they're reaping <laughs> tens of millions of uh, billions of dollars in profits, right? So you can't really blame the corporations. I think it's just the system, and if they don't do it, their stockholders will throw them, uh, throw the uh, CEOs out on their butts. So it's not a public uh, system in the U- U.S. As Harry Brown used to say. Uh what uh, what was the problem in the 50s and the 60s how come you didn't he- you didn't have all of these problems with the healthcare system well it's because government wasn't so involved so an operation which would cost a couple of hundred bucks in real dollars now costs a couple of thousand right and something that would cost 2000 bucks in real dollars in 1960 now costs $20,000 so naturally because government has been interfering with the healthcare industry uh, regulating it controlling it subsidizing it taxing it funding it lobbying it then uh, the government has driven up the cost, right? Government interference always drives up cost. And so naturally now people are saying, well, it's so expensive that we need more government, but of course it's so expensive because there is government in it to begin with because violence doesn't work. In Canada, uh, it's pretty bad. You know, it's, it's pretty bad. We have tried six different ways from Sunday, of course they're all political tries, so it doesn't work, to reduce the wait times. And people are waiting up to a year for cataract surgery, a year of being semi-blind. And wow. you have no alternative. Uh, in Canada, recently, a guy who had kidney cancer, I think it was, uh, was rejected. Right? And he said uh, the government said you can't have an operation because the cancer is too advanced. Right? So he sold his house uh, and he went to England and he spent his own money and he's fully healthy now. Uh, you really are at the whim of the bureaucrats, right? So people say, well, um, we don't like being at the whim of uh, the insurance companies. At least they're competing to some degree for your time and money and attention, and they're. <laughs> You can change them. In Canada, we have just one insurance company that has all the guns, that prevents all competition. And, of course, that's not a, a better system or a better solution. You've got tons and the, hundreds of thousands of people here can't even get a hold of a doctor. Right? You can't get a family doctor because they're too short. And, I mean, sorry, they're, they're short of, of doctors up here. Uh, the system is completely unsustainable from a finance standpoint. As soon as you make anything free, the usage of it just goes up through the roof, right? So... Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's a great system, it, it, the way that he puts it forward, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, people who uh, uh, who are going to benefit hugely from having other people pay their bills are going to be very happy, right? And but people who end up having to pay those bills and not having control uh, are going to be unhappy. And the last thing that I'll say is that there's this debate up here in Canada It says, you know, we don't want a two-tier healthcare system because there's quite a bit of a movement to get some private uh, stuff in. Of course, the politicians have their own healthcare system, which we don't get access to, right? Because you don't see the, the uh, prime minister of Canada waiting in the emergency room, right? So it's in the same way that they get their own schools, like in the U.S., right? And people in the Congress don't send their kids to public schools, right? So they have their own system, which, you know, would sort of belie that. So there already is a two-tier healthcare system. The other thing, too, of course, is that if you know someone in the field, like if you have a brother-in-law who's a doctor, then you move to the front of the line. And I've seen this happen uh, a whole number of times up here. Uh, it, there's, there's, what, what happens is you don't get rid of the problem of access by making something free. All that happens is it becomes political and it becomes internal. And if you know someone and and if you you, you can get your way in that way, or if you have some sort of clout, or if you're in the media, it just. You, but but to the average person who doesn't have that kind of clout, who you never hear from, uh, the system is uh, terrible.
0: I think I think it's kind of analogous to a, a, a man uh, selling all his family's assets like his children's clothes and their food and buying a Rolls Royce and then looking at the Rolls Royce and worshiping it and being like, wow, this guy has it made. He's got this great Rolls Royce. And I think right. the problem is that in France, uh, he's talking about how great it is and, you know, the whole all the free nannying and all the health care. Yeah, he's focusing on the people who are getting it. But When you actually look at France as a whole, they have, you know, 300 percent GDP unfunded li- liabilities. So, right. you know, they're in deep trouble. And it's I think the whole flaw of the movie is that it focuses on healthcare like it's a great thing, but it's the presence of that healthcare which is driving those countries into the ground.
2: Right? Yeah, I think the the movie has two problems: a misrepresentation and and wrong conclusions drawn from from correctly represented things. Like he misrepresents Canada and Cuba, saying you know, oh look, these people are they, there's no lines here, they're all coming here for free. And then he goes to Cuba and he's like, look. I brought Americans that were sick and look how good, look how well they're treated. They get medicine for five cents. And, and those right. are obviously blatant misrepresentations, at least of Cuba, because I, mean, <laughs> what, I don't even need to he justify it, that.
0: He makes it seem like they just landed on a raft, like on the island and walked on and got health care. But, you know, it's funny because when they were talking to the firefighters, there's a guy there wearing a military uniform, or at least what looked like a lot like a military uniform,
2: spouting all this symbolic uh, horse Generic, generic talk about uh, the nine eleven attacks and
0: yeah, right. I mean, he's spouting all our this brothers, all the, this garbage, firefighters, and, and it's just like this guy is clearly ver- well versed in propaganda, and you right? Just, and you just wonder how can Michael Moore try to pass off to us that he went into Cuba and got health care and the Cuban government had absolutely nothing to do with the right. presentation of it.
1: This uh, this also happened, in you know, just to bring up some I think slightly relevant history. The same thing happened in the 1920s and in the 1930s when people like George Bernard Shaw and other kinds of writers and, 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 uh, uh, and artists went to the Soviet Union, and they were paraded around. And Shirley McLean did this in China in the 1960s, eh? paraded around, and, and uh, everything looks fantastic. But, of course, it's a nightmare socialist hell, right? I mean, that's why people... Don't uh, don't want to be there. But that's why they die to try and get out. You know, if 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 free teeth is what makes a human being happy, why are so many Cubans dying on the high seas trying to get out of that prison? Right. I mean, it is kind of lunatic and it is kind of ridiculous. Uh, and and the other thing, of course, that's that's important about uh, Michael Moore's treatment uh, of this kind of stuff is, you know, economics. The trick about economics is, as, as you're saying, it's it's easy to see the visible gains. Right. So if the government gives some business. Fifty million dollars, then they're going to go out and hire a whole bunch of people, and so all of those people who get hired because of the government's loan or grant are going to be like, "Yay! You know, we've got a job," and, and that's wonderful. What you don't see, of course, are all the jobs that are not created because right. the government took fifty million dollars out of uh, uh, out of the uh, the tax right through through the taxes out of the tax paying population. So all that happens is the government creates a whole bunch of jobs that are probably going to go bye bye because there is no demand for them in the long run, and we know that because. It's the government that's giving them the money. But we don't get to see all the people who never got a job, right? So the people who get a job, they're all happy. The people who don't get a job, they don't even know they did, that they would have got a job because there's no alternate universe that they can compare their, their uh, results to.
2: And, that's and also in the same the...
1: way, uh, that's uh, what happens in places like France. See, yeah, you can talk to a bunch of people there who got free medical care. Of course they're going to be happy. Eh, free medical care, right? <laughs> who wouldn't be? It's a little tougher, though, when you talk to the 20 or 25 percent of unemployed youths who can't get jobs because of all of this uh, taxation and so on. You you never talk to those people because they don't even know how much they've been robbed.
2: And they don't need medical care because they're young and healthy.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, that's, of course, the 50 million million or whatever is uninsured. uh, It's partly because the government has passed legislation because old people vote more than young people saying that you can't uh, rationally charge people by age for their health care. So, of course, it's not particularly... Mm -hmm economically efficient for younger people to get health care well, yeah not, not to mention because just a plethora of regulations
0: it it, it I'm stunts sorry. i'm sorry go ahead
1: no, no,
0: I, I was done. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. It stunts competition in the sense that once the government has created all these regulations for like insurance and how insurers are, medical insurers are supposed to work and how hospitals are supposed to treat people in a certain way, uh, the result is that it creates these extremely high barriers to entry for any startup firm. So only these gigantic corporations that have lots and lots of money can overcome these regulations. So I, I think it's, it's like, it's like a problem when people look at the corporations now in the United States as causing, you know, our high, mel- our, our high medical care costs, when really, in reality, it was, like you said, government intervention that made these costs so high, that eliminated competition, and that created these regulations that, you know, stop me, the consumer, from making my own educated choice. Like, I can't go to an unlicensed doctor, even though I may trust him, to, like, perform even the simplest operation. Yeah,
2: give you a prescription for the, the most benign medicine. You right. can't do that. Right.
0: Like I cannot get ibuprofen uh, over 800 milli- um, over 400 milligrams uh, without a prescription. And uh, for somebody without insurance, that's a disaster for them. Because then they have to Let's go see to a doctor. doctor to get that prescription. So right. they have to take, what, twice the Advil or something.
1: Well, the other thing, too, that, that occurs up here, and I think it's a little bit better in the U.S., is that uh, when, when, when you have something that's free, sort of quote free, you just have to restrict it by other methods, right? So, of course, when everything's free, you just get bigger waiting lines, right? Like if, if uh, movies were free, then you, just, you wouldn't gain anything, right? Because instead of paying 10 bucks or 15 bucks to go and see a movie, you'd just line up for an hour to go and see a movie. You know, it's time or money. You don't get – there's nothing free in the world, right? So right. All that happens here is that individuals have to pay less for health care <laughs> uh, or rather pay it through our taxes. But uh, we don't get it for free. All that happens is we end up waiting longer. And, and also, the other thing, too, is that, I mean, this, this always amazes me. Right? You can't buy a car without the government telling you exactly what the mileage is. Like, you can't advertise a car. You have to say what the mileage is, right? And the government has all of these quality controls uh, saying, you know, well, your windows have to be like this, and, you know, you have to list the ingredients of popsicles and so on. Up here in Canada, you'll be shocked to know, and maybe you won't see, I was certainly shocked when I first figured it out, you cannot find the success rate of a doctor. You can't. It's absolutely illegal, immoral, improbable, impossible to get that information. So if I, I don't know, I wake up one morning, it's like, oh man, I got, I got prostate cancer or something, right? Obviously, i want to go and find the best guy who, who's got the, the best success rate for dealing with this particular illness. I can't get that information. It is absolutely not tracked, impossible to get a hold of. Now, if I know a doctor or I know somebody in the medical health care field, I can find out who the best is just kind of through word of mouth, anecdotally. But I can't in the most important decision. How is it that I'm going to survive this illness? Right? The government will force the people who make Twinkies to list what's, on, what's in them. But you cannot find who is good and who is not good. You have no idea of the quality of the health care that you're going to get. And that's pretty terrifying.
0: Well, if, if you were actually looking for the best doctor, you would be undermining really what the system is in principle, which is supposed to be equal service for everyone. Right. So you don't get to maximize your own chances of survival in the name of socialism.
1: Right, right, right. And, and, and the, the horrifying thing, of course, is that um, uh, But this is inevitable. right? This is inevitable because if, if it was free and you knew who was the best, then that person would be completely swamped. Yes. Right? And, and so this is, it, it's just another way that you restrict it. So it's like, well, yeah, you get stuff for free, but it sucks, right? you know, to, to use a technical term. So there is no free lunch. There is no such thing as free, free lunch anywhere on the planet. And so if you want stuff for free, there will be some people who will benefit, for sure. But uh, the majority of people will not. Yeah, and, and that's one thing. The majority that, of people will not benefit.
2: The one thing that boggled m- my mind about mm-hmm. the French uh, part of the movie Sicko is that these people are so proud of all of their free services. Yep, free childcare. Oh, yep, free everything. Uh, it's and then he'll not make free. You pureed carrots. It's not, yeah, pureed carrots. It's, I, I can't understand how these adults in France, with their eloquence and. Um But it's
1: the old it's the old trick, right? <laughs> if I give you stuff for free, will you give up your liberty? Yeah. I mean, this is the oldest trick in the book. If I give you stuff for free, will you let me take your money? <laughs> and this of course is uh it, this is the trick that a hold up stick up artist does, right? If I if I let you go, you'll give me your money. I'll you know <laughs> give me uh give right. me your uh, freedom and I'll give you stuff and this a takes, negative you know, incentive. Your, your freedom to walk away without a bullet in your chest. But um, And the other thing, of course, that Michael Moore, as all these socialists, tends to do is he obscures the fundamental fact that it's all provided at the point of a gun. I mean, that's the fundamental thing. He talks about, let's get together and kumbaya and everybody's happy and let's take care of the poor and so on and the sick and the the needy, all of which I think are fine ideals. But what nobody ever talks about is that if you disagree with the system, if you want to take any alternative approach, then uh, you... uh, you get shot. The closest thing—the closest I thing mean,
0: I saw to an argument in the whole film was, uh, well, I give it to them because I know they do it for me, and that's pretty much the, the that's pretty much the nearest thing to a justification for why there ought to be socialized medicine. And that, of course, is the complete opposite
1: of of, of socialized medicine, right? Because I think that it's—I think human beings do come together. I think that human beings do help each other. Uh, I think reciprocal altruism is is foundational. Uh, to the family and to communities and so on. And when the government wasn't around, there used to be private societies that would take care of people who ran into these kinds of problems, whether they were church-based or, or they, they used to be called friendly societies that you'd sort of get them at work, you'd pay in a little bit, and then you'd be covered for these kinds of emergencies. Human beings, either human beings do care about each other or they don't. If they do care about each other, you don't need government to point guns at everyone to make them be good people. And if they don't care about each other, then let's not have a government and pretend that we do.
2: Right. Let's not put people... Who who control our lives, and are still susceptible to the not caring about other human beings. Yeah,
1: right. And kind of fundamentally, I mean, I'm forty years old, which is probably like I don't know, nine hundred to you guys, but <laughs> I'm forty years old, and and um, I'm allowed to keep half my income, and uh, uh, I have to obey every single conceivable uh, regulation and rule of which you know ninety but ninety nine percent of which I don't even know, right. Everything that I buy is, you know, is 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 regulated and controlled. And I, I live in this nanny state, right? And I would love before I die, just for one day, I'd even take just one day where I could be an adult and make my own choices. I mean, I think I'm a fairly smart fellow. I think I'm fairly well-informed. I think I'm much better informed about my own life than a bunch of bureaucrats in some city I've never been to. I'd just love one day to be allowed to be an adult. And, of course, I think that's a, a worthwhile thing to to a, Dude, if I want to help the poor, I'll help the poor. I started a company in the 90s. We hired dozens and dozens of people who otherwise wouldn't have had jobs. Uh, so I've done my part. I, you know, I'm happy to do it, right? And give to charity, and and I do the podcasts. I, I hand them out for free, you know, education. Or I think it's a pretty good education that people can get for free. I'm doing my part, but I'm not allowed to make that choice, right? I've still got to hand over half my money uh, and live as a, you know, sort of tax livestock to these people. And I think that I'm competent to run my own life and be my own person, uh, be, be my own good person in the way that, that is logical and sound and rational to me. And by the way, I think I would end up doing a whole lot more good to people than giving my money to uh, the government, which uses it to, for terrible things like welfare and bad education and foreign wars and so on. Uh, I'd just love to be an adult. Wouldn't you just love that? You actually sort of wake up in the morning and <laughs> the money that you make is yours and you can help people and do with it what you will and you can make your own decisions and you don't have to obey all of these people that you've never met. I mean, doesn't it keep you kind of like a retarded child for the rest of your life, uh, which I think is just terrible?
0: I think the hoax that allows this to happen really is democracy in, this, in the sense that it's democracy as pure equality because when you give people the same exact vote, equal votes over... All issues, you're essentially trying to say that they're equal in every regard. So that means that even a poor person in econ- and for, I guess, economic uh, for economic policies will have the same amount of weight as, let's say, you would have. And thus, the result is that, you know, it's the, the traditional, the classic 5149 uh, totalitarianism that as long as somebody can hold something as meaningless as a majority, uh, they can seize your wealth. They can they can they have a majority of your property.
1: Right. And, of course, the, the majority uh, votes for them because right, they, they have, they're getting money. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, right? I mean, the reason that you can't touch Social Security in the U.S. is because uh, the American Association of Retired People makes sure that uh, it's the third rail, right? You touch it, you die. Uh, so, uh, you, you you know, you can't do that. The reason that you can't touch welfare in any significant way is because you're afraid of rioting, right? So you have to pay these people off, right? Pay these people to not have any lives. Pay these people to bring their kids up in ghettos and terrible schools and to get stuck in the underclass, which is just horrible and unbelievably destructive uh, for the poor. I come from a fairly poor neighborhood myself, and I've seen all this stuff firsthand. It's brutal what this stuff does to the poor. It turns them into... Uh, uh, it's just dull-eyed livestock, and it just keeps this cycle going. It's absolutely horrible what all of this uh, what all of this stuff does to the poor. And There's so much human creativity and potential that could be unleashed on these kinds of problems, but it's not allowed to be because it's all uh, cordoned off by the government. They say, we deal with this, we're taking your money, we do it, we deal with it, and so nobody goes in and tries to come up with any creative and positive solutions because, you know, you're not left with any money to do it with, and of course, right. if you try... The government will just uh, get mad at you and cause you lots of problems.
0: What we were saying uh, earlier reminds me of an argument that I've heard for welfare, which is that, well, the rich should be interested in welfare because it, it uh, reduces crime. And it just reminds me, it it's really boils down to pay us at the point of a gun, pay us or we will riot and hurt you.
1: Well, that's the mafia, right? I mean, the mafia will say that. If you go into some mafia neighborhood and you open a store, then some guy will come by in a cheesy pinstripe suit that you can probably see your own reflection in and uh, say, uh, hey, you don't pay us the money, something bad's going to happen to your store. I mean, (laughs) we wouldn't think that's a moral thing. Is that what
0: Canadian mafia sounds like?
1: No, (laughs) there's a little bit more A's, and they will at least leave you a donor or two, but yeah, definitely there's uh, some similarities for sure, but... But no, I mean we wouldn't accept that. I mean that, that, that's extortion, right? And and uh, so the 51.49% stuff. It's uh, you know it's just it's like who you vote for, right? Who you vote for is just the guy who's who's managed to sell his soul the most, right? So if you, whoever's coming up in an election that's actually on the ballot, I mean these are people that are already bought and paid for. Because where did they get the hundred million dollars or more that it takes to run a presidential campaign? Well, they got it from people. You expect, uh, you know, a, a, a thousand percent return on investment for the money that they give to the campaign. And so whoever you are going to vote for has already been bought and paid for by special interests. doesn't represent you in the least.
0: Well, I guess this will tie into the next issue, which I wanted to ask you, which really boils down to your application of your principles in a society that is state-dominated. So let's say, suppose you were an American voter. Would you vote for Ron Paul? And <laughs> I obviously know the answer to this, but I'd like you to answer it anyway.
1: No, absolutely not. Uh, in no way, shape, or form would I vote for Ron Paul, and this is not because I think Ron Paul is a bad guy, or, you know, Ron Paul will never get in, or, or if he gets in, he'll turn into, I don't know, some goose-stepping Stalin-esque monster. I'm sure that Ron Paul is a perfectly nice fellow, and if we met over lunch, I'm sure we would enjoy each other's company. Uh, but uh, no, you don't, uh, you don't participate in a system that is founded on violence. You don't accept the premises that violence is how you control violence. It's like saying if you're an atheist... Uh, that you should uh, you should join the Catholic Church and uh, vote for the Pope in order to get rid of the Church. Well, it doesn't work that way. The moment that you accept the premise that um, uh, that uh, that violence should be used in any way, shape, or form, uh, you've lost the whole war. You don't get rid of the Ku Klux Klan by joining it, right? <laughs> and by trying to get your way right. to the top and then trying to dismantle it. The moment you join it, you've said, uh, yeah, this is good for me. And uh, of course, Ron Paul has some policies which are just out and out brutal and and immoral in the extreme, right? He wants to deport 10 million illegal Im- <laughs> illegal immigrants, right? <laughs> of course, the funny thing is, none of the Americans would have gotten in in the 18th century if the same rules had been in place, right? This is the old pattern: we are in now, let's raise the drawbridge, and <laughs> nobody else is coming in, right? But uh, yeah, what, what does he think would happen when he tries to deport these these 10 million people? They'd fight back. There'd be bloodshed. There'd be murder. I mean. Uh, it's, it's completely horrendous. And, uh, and even just on a practical level, I mean, Ron Paul has done uh, nothing to be able to lower the size of government in his own district, right? So if somebody's failed completely at a smaller task, giving them a huger task doesn't seem to make much sense, right?
0: Right. So, I mean, in the specific case of Ron Paul, you know, we find that he is actually a Christian conservative, he opposes abortion, he uh, opposes immigration, and he's clearly ineffective. I mean, sorry, ineffectual. But... uh, I guess my, my question is, let's say there were, let's say Ron Paul were, this, were as great as some people paint him to be, that, uh, you know, he is, he is effective, he would be effective at reducing the size of government. I mean, and he weren't a Christian conservative. Let's say he were, like, truly as libertarian, small government libertarian as one could be. Do you think that would affect your decision?
1: No, no, not at all, because small government doesn't help. That's just like saying a small tumor, it'll grow back. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, let's say that we could magically get the government of the United States back to what is it one one thousandth of the size that it is now, back to the the constitutionally limited government of 1776. Let's say that that some godlike politician could manage to pull that off, which is completely impossible. But let's just say, you know, for the sake of argument, that that this happened. Well, um, how long did it take before the Whiskey Rebellion occurred and people were getting shot for not paying their taxes, taxes which were far higher? Than the taxes of the of King George that were being levied before the revolution, a couple of years. How long did it take before you had the uh, as it's called? I don't know the War of Northern Aggression. People always get mad at me when I call it the Civil War, so whatever it's called, <laughs> where you get six hundred thousand people uh, getting killed for the sake of fiat currency and national debt and uh, the control of the federal government, right? How long did it take before um, universal compulsory state education? Right, the worst plague of any society is to have the government train all the children, right? It's always going to be propaganda, no matter how, how you slice it. Well, it was uh, less than 100 years, right? It was the uh, 1860s, I think, that the, uh, the universal public education... So even if we did this massive, huge struggle and got the, uh, the U.S. government back down to one one-thousandth of its size, no income tax, no... Uh, a couple of tariffs and excise taxes, and that's it, Right? No no capital gains tax, no death tax, no sales tax, none, nothing. All of that stuff was gotten rid of, which is surely the wildest and most impossible dream. <laughs> it just grows back. That's all it does, is it just grows back. And I think we should get the cancer out, not just try and repress it for a little bit. I think we should hand the future a freedom that is sustainable.
0: So you, you don't think, l- let's say that uh, somebody knew you know, that his vote would make the difference, and he knew that, let's say he erected, ele- erected elected somebody like Ron Paul into office, uh, and it would reduce coercion against him by just a little, he shouldn't do it? He should just let the system collapse?
1: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely he should. Uh, yeah, for sure, because, I mean, this is just looking back at history, right? So small government uh, people all the way back through uh, the classical liberals of the mid-19th century, 150 years, just, just to use the shortest possible time frame. For 150 years, small government activists, or so people who want to reduce the size of the government, have been trying to work within the political system to get the government to be smaller right, hasn't really worked that well. I mean, just empirically, right? Forget the theories. Just look at the facts that for 150 years, and if you count the sort of resurrected Libertarian Party, 40 straight years, right, they have been working and working and working night and day tirelessly to reduce the size of the government. And the government has been growing asymptotically throughout that entire time. So something's wrong with that approach. I mean, just, just empirically, even if we throw all the theory out of the window, if I say, hey, I've got this great medicine that's going to that's make your tumor go away, or at least make it a lot smaller, and your tumor just grows bigger and bigger and faster and faster every day, at some point you're going to say, you know, maybe we should revisit whether this medicine actually works or not, right? So there's be huge numbers of people trying to get the government back to its constitutional limits or get rid of the income tax. It doesn't work. Government keeps getting bigger and bigger. And now, of course, it's far too late. I mean, the government's just going to collapse, I mean, financially, right? And that's not going to be that far away, just mathematically. I mean, this is, this is what happens to all empires, right? They just collapse financially. And uh, so we've got to get the word out there as much as possible so that people don't mistake this collapse for uh, the result of freedom, but they correctly identify it as the result of coercion and fiat money and all this kind of nonsense.
0: So, uh, I, guess, so I guess really in conclusion of, of all of that, the individual, uh, you think that the individual has a better shot at at the government collapsing into anarchy and him being safe than him continuing to live under the state system? Or is it just a matter of principle that you just refuse to associate with the state at all?
1: Well, I think that the principle and the practical go hand in hand. So I would say, yes, for sure, the government, I mean, the government mathematically is going to collapse. There's no question of that, right? It's not
3: disputed, really
1: right I mean that's so for sure uh the government is going to shrink because it runs out of money, the same way that the Roman government did the same way that uh, the um, the Russian government did in the eighties, the government's going to shrink not through voting but because it goes bankrupt right I mean that's just inevitable i mean this is not particularly controversial so uh, given that that's the only way that it's going to happen, I don't think that it's worth uh, compromising your ethics to to go and try and control a system that's going to self-destruct because of its own violence to begin with. So uh, I just, uh, to me, that, like not only will it not help, uh, not only will I, I think that this participation by people who want smaller government legitimizes the government, but uh, it's not going to work, right? So, you, you, you know, you could violate your principles for some effect. I don't think that ever really works, but you're not going to have any effect, and it's just going to make things worse. And you're going to have compromised your ideals then for nothing in particular, rather than a continuation of what's already been happening.
3: So,
0: I so I guess uh, tangentially, uh, we we can also talk about you know uh, applying your principles in the context of a state society. So, what's your view on the use of public utilities such as this radio station?
1: Great, fabulous. No problem with it whatsoever. <laughs> Great.
0: No, I, it's like, I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to, a technical fleshing out of it because I, I myself, before I, long before I ever held the views I have, I became part of a public university and, it, you know, about halfway through it, I started to realize, uh oh. Why am I in a public university? Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, I came to terms with the fact that perhaps maybe it's the presence of the public institutions did affect my opportunities in life and that this is justification for me to at least finish my degree here. But, you know, to what degree should somebody, you know, use the public utilities and to what degree should somebody not, you know, or, or abstain from using things like uh, unemployment or welfare?
1: oh i think i think that uh i mean i think you should abstain from unemployment and welfare not because of any moral issues it's just i mean unless you're going to starve or something it's just not going to be good for you right it tends right. to blunt your sense of purpose and all that i don't think there's any moral issues though we're in a state of nature when it comes to the government right i mean we're, we're like slaves right i mean we don't have any moral obligations to the government uh, any more than a slave has moral obligations to the slave owner right if you can get away great i mean if. If you're going to eat the food that the slave owner provides, then eat the food that the slave owner provides. I mean, to me, that doesn't matter. I mean, the issue is to get rid of the violence that is so endemic to all societies really in the world. And, you know, given that it's the 4th of July, we can say that the U.S. is one of the least violent societies domestically that the world has ever seen, and would all do, uh, do a happiness. And, and, you know, the, we can have this conversation and not fear for our lives. is wonderful, and I sort of want to put that out there. Um, but sort of that having been said... Uh, no uh, you 're going to get half your income uh, or i don 't know thirty or forty percent in the u s taken away from you for the rest of your life and uh, so for me it 's like uh, if you 've got to pay the protection money and there 's a buffet, go have uh, some food right because you 're paying for it anyway right so and you, you can 't draw a line unless you 're going to go and live in the foothills of Montana in some you know i don 't know some tent. Uh, how are you going to avoid it? You've got to drive on the roads. Everything you eat has been driven on the roads. The food that you get is either tariffed or subsidized through some farm program or other. Uh, you already went through 14 years of public education. Uh, you can't get to a university that's not publicly funded. And to me, it's like that stuff just doesn't matter at all. I mean, you're sort of in a state of nature with the government. Grab whatever you can because they're sure grabbing whatever they can, and let's have a situation where you can uh, have a free choice about your ethics rather than just have to live in a reactionary state of violence. That having been said, there are some things that I would definitely not be <laughs> be pro, right? I think that joining the military, uh, that's not good, right? I mean, that's really not good. Well, it's good. really
0: becoming part of the government uh, in a different kind of way.
1: Well, you're becoming a core part of the You're the contract guy, right? Then you're the hitman. You're the guy who's like, oh, who do you want me to shoot? Well, chain of command, off I go to shoot them. And that's definitely immoral, Right. And of course, we could be free tomorrow if the policemen and the military just stopped enforcing all of these crazy rules that these people in <laughs> government come up with, right? So, I mean, they are the visible fist of the power structure, right? So, uh, I would say, don't, don't become a cop, <laughs> don't become a uh, a, 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 a soldier, um, and uh, you know, maybe not an IRS agent, whatever. I mean, if there's alternatives, right? If there's no alternatives, the only job you can get, that you know, and then go and do it, right? But uh, I, I just don't think that there's any particular ethics in a situation of such core coercion.
2: So um, what what about when people apply this to voting? Wouldn't voting be just another way of using a government service that you can't really be morally reprehensible for, for using?
1: Well... Um... Uh, using in what way i mean using you have it to, to try sort of to go out and positively vote right this is I, mean, I i can't go anywhere in canada without driving on a public road so i mean unless i'm going to sort of live in my basement and eat my toes right i'm going to have to sort of go out of the house <laughs> uh so that i have to use right um uh, but uh, voting uh that, that's something you don't have to do it right i mean right. you don't have to go and do it to me that would be similar to uh, join in the military in some ways. I don't think it would be as bad, of course, right, because you're not actually sort of out there using violence, but you're certainly approving of it as a way of solving problems.
2: Okay, so it would be still a moral issue to vote. It's not exempt from morality because of the state of nature that we're in.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's an excellent point. And let, let me pull back a little bit from that last statement. I was just sort of mulling it over, and I think that was too strong. Um, no, you're not, uh, you're not uh, pulling a trigger if you, if you go and vote. Now, for sure, you're saying that I want to control the people who pull the trigger, which is sort of saying that pulling the trigger is okay. But, uh, no, I don't, I don't consider it uh, immoral. I just sort of consider it against your values uh, and impractical. But, no, I wouldn't consider it immoral in the same way that I would, uh, you know, going over and shooting Iraqis for no reason.
2: So it's, it's more like inconsistent and right. ineffective.
1: Yes, well, I, I would say counterproductive. Counterproductive, okay. It's kind
0: of like my choosing to... Uh, you know, my choosing to accept abuse from, let's say, my parents, uh, even though it's my right to do whatever I want with myself and, you know, maybe I, it's my right to be in that relationship, it's simply irrational for me to be doing it.
2: Yeah, just trying like, to reason with them to, hey, can you cut the beatings down maybe to once a month instead of just walking away, I guess.
1: Well, I'd say that's a little... I mean, that's a good analogy in a lot of ways, but I think it's a little incomplete insofar as if you accept, you know, physical abuse from your parents, then... um, uh, it's just you that they're hurting, right? But voting and, and legitimizing the use of state force uh, does does a lot of things to other people, right, domestically and overseas. So, so it's I, not, I, you're not containing it? I'm sorry. Well, did you hit a number? No, no. Uh, sorry. It's just saying you, you're not containing it. Like if, if you're a masochist, you want to get beaten up by your parents or your girlfriend or whatever. It's just you that's getting hurt. But when you go and vote and legitimize a system that you know has nuclear weapons and the military and you know all this kind of – you're doing a lot of stuff. Right to legitimize something that hurts other people, right? So if it's just you uh, and your parents, then you're the one getting hurt. It's sort of contained within you, but when you go and vote and legitimize a power structure that does a lot of violence around the world, other people suffer, I think, a lot more.
0: Well, okay, then I guess this ties over to what we were saying earlier about earlier services. I mean, uh, on one hand, you you can't treat the government like uh, like its own entity because it isn't. I mean, it, it, it gathers its money from other people. So when you partake of a certain government service, aren't you... That, well, when you don't need to, like the road, uh, aren't you kind of validating the force used against other people to build that service?
2: Well, you have to remember that you also, in, in a way, or your parents contributed to that too. They were taxed too.
0: Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, naturally, it's, it's fair. But I'm saying like, let's say you know in this case that you did not contribute to this. Let's say you know that uh, y- you happen to have not had a job for a while and you haven't paid taxes in a while and you go and you take... From a certain service that you know that another class had to pay for it let's say the rich
3: had to pay for a public like school. a grant
0: like a student grant or right so don't you feel couldn't you feel as though you were coercing those people or you were at least partaking in the coercion
1: you know i I, I certainly understand where you're coming from, and I think that's a, that's a good argument uh, the The only thing that I would say about that is that let 's say that you 're some guy who can 't get a job right, and, and you haven 't had a job for a while, you just can 't get a job, and, and I, I remember in the '90s when I graduated from school that I it's in the middle of a recession, and, oh, it was killers couldn 't get a job right a gotten and stuff like this right you don 't know what the world would look like if there was no government, but I can guarantee you this: that the economy would be a whole lot stronger, right, and many, many more people would have access to much, much greater economic opportunities right so when you start looking at the cause and effect of operating within a state-run coercive system, it becomes very complicated because you can't compare it to where would I be in life without the government. Well, you'd be much, much further ahead. That ties, very, many, that ties into my uh,
0: public school uh, argument, which is that uh, the reason that part of an education is so ridiculously expensive is because that they have to compete with subsidized uh, public schools and that you know the presence of an institution such as this here uh, Florida International University really in a way is what kind of drove out the possibilities of other private schools opening and 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 the same would go actually not for only for universities which are you know ma- which do need to be large but for uh primary schools and uh you know I think the common argument goes well if there's no public schools how are the kids going to get education well how did kids get education before
1: well, and, and are they being educated now? The government has them for 14 years, and half of them can't even fill out a job application when they graduate from high school. But they're not being educated at all at the moment, right? They're being intellectually and emotionally and economically crippled, right? So uh, yeah, whatever, we, we, we could uh, we could put the kids back to work in the field, and they'd be better off than being stuck in these terrible pens of government-run education. So. Uh, no I, I, I agree with you, but it 's so hard to conceive what life would be like without the government, but it certainly would be a lot better so for me if you can 't get a job and you go on welfare and you haven 't worked for a while, you know for me that 's not the core issue I mean the core issue I think is just to keep pointing out the violence that is involved in a state based society and uh, when you when you keep pointing out, and I sort of say it 's the gun in the room that nobody talks about right' It's the elephant in the room this is the gun in the room that no one talks about. You just keep talking about that gun i don 't particularly feel the need to criticize people on welfare because that 's just the environment that 's the system that 's the education that 's where they are, uh, and that 's the decisions they made as the result of a very bad system. I just think keep pointing out that the government is an agency of violence, that uh, you live without uh, perpetual violence in your life very productively. Uh, keep pointing out that coercion is wrong, that there 's better ways to solve human problems than by pointing guns at people. And this idea that is so very, very unusual to people will become much more common coinage when people recognize how practical it is in their own life, how practical it will be in society as a whole. So for me, the questions of, you know, should I take this government service and that, I don't find it to be too important. What I want to do is focus my efforts on just keep reminding people who are outside this particular area of understanding just how uh, brutal a system it is and how destructive a system it is and how fundamentally immoral a system it is.
0: Well, I think I guess the, 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 the best way to actually even solve the problem of, you know, which government service should I use is uh, at least personal honesty, you know. And, like be as intellectually honest to yourself as you can to say, you know, do I really d- – would I really have deserved to have this food if – I uh, if there were no government, you know, because uh, let's say you knew that you had no skills to offer anybody. Let's say you know you were working with outdated technology. Uh, you might you know figure out for yourself that you don't really deserve to take from the government services because even if the government wasn't there, you wouldn't deserve it. You know, something along those lines.
1: It could be, but of course, the question is why have you ended up with no skills, right? If the government's had you for fourteen years of coerced education. You know, this is this is how complicated it gets for me. It's like if you were in a free society, then people would be clamoring to try and find ways to make you useful to them, right? They give you apprenticeship programs. They give you free education in return for work, uh, commitments after you were educated. People would be, you know, tripping all over themselves to try and maximize your human capital. And so you've ended up in a situation where the government's had you in their tender mercies for, you know, half your life or three-quarters of your life, and you've got no skills, and it's tough to, you know, you're not a very good reader, and you can't write very well, and, your verbal skills are lower. So to me, it's just—it's all too, too, you can't unravel it in a way. So I'm not sure that those um, questions are that important. I think they're important for people who are criticizing anarchists who are saying, oh, well, so that's totally hypocritical. You, you You don't believe in the government, but you're taking a student loan. It's like... <laughs> You know to me, if people are that interested in integrity, then they should really be focusing on the fact that the government is an agency of violence rather than criticizing people trying to struggle to figure out a way to live ethically in a corrupt environment
2: and I, and I think that that 's the main value of the of your approach to philosophy and to issues that you argue first from from first principles you don 't take every instance every dilemma in that happens you know like cnn or when i'm watching like fox news it's like oh well this happened w- what do you think well i think this and then you know they they just say the the cliched things that would conform to their party line or whatever it is that the you know whatever opinion they represent and then it, it never goes anywhere it the debate kind of ends on the host just shutting both people up because they w- what are they arguing from i don't know what are they justifying so uh, that's the what i love most about your approach is that you argue from first principles you realize these are symptoms of a bigger problem of a bigger disease that you know it's coerced by the coercive um uh, institution which is a government and and using violence to solve problems instead of reasoning out and negotiating and and having the freedom to make decisions and and uh, that's what I find most interesting and most fulfilling about the the website
1: well thanks, I appreciate that and I think that I mean in the time that I was trying to figure this stuff out with our first principles, I definitely got lost more than i <laughs> I was lost more than I was found. It's like you know this what, they did the guy just pardoned. did Bush just pardon scooter libby did I sort not read that the other day, and people are like ooh, he should have been pardoned yeah. Ooh, he shouldn't have been pardoned yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. you know this is good, this is bad." And to me, the fundamental question is, well, this is anarchy, right? Right? This is like, you did something illegal. Wait, no, you're pardoned, right? I mean, right. That, that's no rules. Now, people say anarchy is a system with no rules. Here we have a clear example of no rules. Think of all the people that Bill Clinton pardoned uh, in his last days of office. I and mean, it's just, this is a system where one man's whim rules other men's lives. That's anarchy. That is totalitarianism in principle.
0: I think the irony is that people who criticize President Bush criticize him because he doesn't respect the rule of law but <laughs> it's impossible to have the rule of law when the very laws themselves contradict themselves. And, and, and when they're own...
2: established by people right. by, in a monopolistic fashion.
0: Well not only that though, the laws that they establish they contradict themselves. The laws allow for their own compromise. Right. You know, you know, so the establishment of uh, of I guess prosecution laws for politicians, you know they allow these ways out
2: right so, and I even saw the this very issue being discussed the other day on uh, c n n or Fox or something, and then someone brought up the fact that, well, you know we don 't get to ask our judges um, wh- this oh, I think this sentence was unfair, you know, and uh, but if people really thought that that was a problem, like Bush really has this gang that he can bully around or, or that, that he can control then they wouldn't be on tv talking about it i don't know it just seems like a contradiction to me everything people do they they find some way to evade going back to first principles
1: well sure i mean especially in the media right i mean this is the wonderful yeah. thing about the internet right this is the socratic symposium that we get to talk about ideas in where uh, the the powers that be sort of don't have control over the medium in particular and of course it's very challenging i mean if you're a if you're a um, a reporter or something and you start to talk about the fundamental violence that is at the heart of a state-based society, you're not going to have a very. You're not going to be around for very long. You're not going Your to get pulled. killed or anything. But you're not going to have a very long career, right? Because the government is the source of most of the information that ends up in the media, right? Because it's a lot easier to read a government press release than it is to do detailed investigative reporting, right? So, um, so the government is the hub in the center, right? If You go to the White House briefing room and you start to talk about. Uh, the coercion, that the, the nature of a state-based society, you're not going to be invited back. I mean, this is, this is like all the way back to, uh, to the first Roman emperors. This, this particular principle. So everything has to be watered and diluted, and you have to be distracted with these petty little arguments of, you know, how brained it is, Terry Schiavo. And so, I mean, all this stuff is complete nonsense. Or should there be gay marriage or should there not be gay marriage? The fundamental question isn't should there or shouldn't be. It's like why does one, put, why, why does one group who, however large or small, get to impose its will on others at the point of a gun. And if you deal with that issue, then the rest of it starts to look kind of unimportant.
0: Right. Oh, I think how they end up justifying those types of things is they try to appeal to them as principles, but, you know, they just throw out... The, you know, the, starting, the starting point of their, of their argument really is this
2: unsupported assertion,
0: and people either like it or they
2: don't. Yeah, there's no methodology for finding valid principles. So they
0: just, they just say, oh, well, family is important to society, and gay marriages upset families, therefore gay marriages are bad for society. So it's really the problem where they start at the first principle, and it's, you know, it really comes down to whether the people who hear it, the people who vote for them, choose to agree with it or not.
1: Right, right. And of course, you know, there's no definition of society or good or bad for. Uh, it's it just, it, none of it makes any sense at all. <laughs> and uh, I don't think that, I mean, just at a practical level, I can of imagine that two happily married people, you know, who've got a great family life and love their kids and, you know, whatever, they're going to say, w- what? They're allowing gay marriage? We're getting divorced. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's just not going to happen. What on earth does my marriage have to do with whether or not. Uh, two two guys or two women down the street uh, shack up and call themselves a family. It just doesn't have anything to do with it whatsoever. That's like saying that um, my choice of two percent milk is is uh, directly influenced by your choice of buying a car. I mean, it just doesn't make. If you want to do something different, do something different, right? But of course, the costs of enforcement are always offloaded, right, to to other people. It's like the problem of war, the problem of other things, right? The cost of enforcing this stuff is always offloaded to the taxpayers because if you went to the people who said, and you said, look, it's going to cost you 500 bucks a year to enforce this gay marriage ban, write me a check. I think you'd find a lot of people dropping off the radar as far as their opposition to gay marriage went, the same way that if you went to the average uh, pro-military American and said, only the pro-military people are going to be paying for the war and for the military as a whole, so I'll need a check from you for $25,000 a year. Uh, I think you'd find a lot of people who had ribbons on their cars kind of taking them off, right? Because <laughs> what happens is you get to offload your preferences to the, to the cost of other people, or the cost of your preferences to other people, which makes having those preferences a whole lot easier. You don't have to pay for them yourself directly.
0: Right, what you're exactly saying is what capitalism is. You know, if, if, you, if you want something, no matter how bad you want it, if you can't pay for it, nobody's supposed to pay for it for you. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, not supposed to, I mean, but you can't force them to. Right. right? I mean, if, if I want a bike... Uh, and I'm a kid. And I, I can sort of go around and, and ask people for the money, but I just can't shoot them if they don't want to give it to me. That's the only thing, right?
0: Okay. Well, actually, it's it's five o'clock, and uh, we can run a little overtime if you if you would like to, Stefan.
1: Uh, it's it's totally fine with me. Just uh, just let me know uh, if if it's uh, if it's good with you guys. If you have more questions, or or if oh, you sure. feel we we've have, uh, solved we all, the, all the problems it. of the world.
0: Absolutely plenty to talk about. Well, first, uh, maybe before, before we continue, you can give us a, a quick plug of uh, Free Domain Radio and what it has free to Free
1: Domain operate. Radio. Absolutely. I certainly can. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, free Domain Radio is a, a website devoted to this exploration of uh, philosophy and ethics and truth and art and psychology and relationships from first principles. And there's a website with almost a thousand uh, actively engaged, uh, philosophically minded people. There are podcasts. It's entirely free. Entirely voluntary, uh, you can donate. If and when you choose, I do suggest 50 cents a podcast just because the philosopher does like to eat and has to pay for his voiceover IP. So uh, I, do, I do request donations, uh, and uh, I do work at it full-time. It was originally a hobby, but then I found that I was much more interested in philosophy than I was in uh, being a, an executive in the software world, so uh, I have now moved to it full-time, which has made me all the more excitingly dependent upon my listeners so. Uh, please drop by freedomainradio.com. You can listen to the podcast. I have free uh, videos uh, explaining everything under the sun, at least from my perspective. You can join in the conversation. And we also have an Ask a Therapist where you can send psychological relationship-type questions, familial-type questions, to my wife, who is a registered psychological associate uh, up here in Canada who will be more than happy uh, to uh, to respond to you. We do that over a podcast, so lots of different services available for people who are interested in exploring ideas, and thank you. That, that's ended the plug.
0: Okay, great. Well, I, actually, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the forums, too. I mean, uh, the forum does have a lot of members, almost a 1,000, right? Mm-hmm. Great. So, uh, so there's a lot of discussion, and if I recall correctly, there's a many, many sub-forums.
1: Yes, yes, there are. No, I definitely, I spend usually at least an hour uh, going through uh, and, and uh, trying to uh, answer questions as best I can, uh, occasionally moderating the odd flare-up of temper, which does occur when people start approaching core uh, values and family issues and so on. But, uh, no, it's it's a fantastic crew. Uh, we also do a Sunday call-in show, uh, which is usually on Skype. It's Skype uh, casted down at the moment Sunday, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We do a call-in show where people can call in and ask questions. So. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful, I, I've never had any experience with forums, I never really posted on, on these systems before I started uh, Free Domain Radio, but it is a wonderful, wonderful place to get, uh, to put your ideas out and get uh, critiqued, and there's some really, really smart people with a lot of experience and knowledge who can help you out with stuff.
0: Okay, well that that ends the plug. <laughs>
1: Yeah, okay. That's okay. Absolutely, no more plug. I promise.
0: No, 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 it's okay. You can plug as like as much as you like. Oh well. So now, actually, I kind of want to move on to something maybe a little more philosophically rigorous, which is the uh, is-ought problem and uh, how that how that uh, initially, you know, on the face of it, poses a problem for ethics and uh, maybe how we can go about fixing it
2: or how you go about fixing
0: it or how you go about fixing it.
1: Sure. Do you want to Do you want to run through the definition of it? I'm sure I've had uh, my chance to talk more than enough.
0: Huh. Well, no, I mean, uh, you can go ahead and explain it, because you have a lot of experience explaining it. See, here's where I have trouble, because I have to alternate between my host and uh, commentator right. role.
1: <laughs>
0: so, right. so actually, right. I'll just go ahead and ask you about it first.
1: Okay, sure. Well, uh, the is-ought problem is uh, something which has really been growing since the general fall in most of the West of uh, religious-based ethics. And the is-ought problem is, uh, as you sort of said earlier, why, why be good? Why be good? And, and, of course, goodness or virtue, and I, I wish there were better words because it makes you just sound like some sort of pious <laughs> Puritan or something, but virtue does not exist in the real world, right? Numbers do not exist in the real world. The concept forest doesn't exist somewhere in among those trees, right? It all exists within our mind. So people say, well, how can something just exist within our own mind and not exist in the real world and not be subjective, Well, uh, of course, the the solution to that is to recognize that since ideas or concepts are derived from things in the world, they can exist only within our own mind and yet not be subjective, right? So the scientific method as a principle, right, the one that Francis Bacon in the 16th century, I think it was, developed, the scientific method as a principle of organizing and validating theories about the natural world, the scientific method does not exist in the real world, right? If you've got a theory about the moon, and maybe the moon causes uh, tides or whatever, your theory about the moon does not exist in the real world, right?
0: But it's a result of behaviors in the world.
1: Exactly, right. So it does exist within your own mind, but it's not subjective. So the, the scientific method exists within our own mind, but it's not subjective. Mathematics... Numbers exists within our own mind, but nobody's going to say that mathematics is purely subjective. I tried that approach in grade nine, and it didn't get very far, because <laughs> the alternative was lots of studying, which was not my thing at the time. But um, uh, And I would say that the same argument is, is holds true of, of ethics, right? So there's nothing in the world that says we should or should not do something. right? You don't have to get out of bed. You don't have to eat. You don't have to shower. Uh, and uh, uh, this is, of course, taking me right back to my bachelor days, but <laughs> you don't have to do anything, right? You, you can just choose to expire in your bed silently. There's, I mean, you've got pain and so on, but but you don't have to do anything, and there's nothing in the world that says you have to do something. But the way that I try and sort of solve that problem is to say you don't have to have a theory about how human beings should behave. You don't have to have a theory about anything, about truth or falsehood, right? You can just not open your mouth and talk philosophy ever, in your whole life. But the moment that I say that theories about ethics should be universal and logical and consistent, and ideally there should be some historical or present-day evidence for the truth or falsehood of ethical propositions, then you're either going to say, well, I think that there should be this, that, and the other, or whatever. Or you're going to say, I don't think that there's such a thing as ethics. Right. So the way that I def- have uh, defined ethics is universally preferable behavior. So something which is preferable, not just for you, like you like ice cream and jazz, but something that's universal. Now, if somebody says to me, there's no such thing as universally preferable behavior, well, they've just made a universally preferable statement, right? So they have just said to me the logical equivalent of, there is no such thing as truth, right? The moment you say, there is no such thing as truth, you have just made a truth statement, right? So it it, it can't conceivably work logically. It's like trying to disprove logic by using logic. So you can't say, logically, there's no such thing as universally preferable behavior, because then you're saying that it is universally preferable to believe that there's no such thing as universally preferable behavior, which is a complete contradiction. So you can't enter into any debate about ethics, and I know this is like totally mind-twisty, but (laughs) you can't enter into any debate about ethics or truth or falsehood or philosophy without accepting universal norms of truth is better than falsehood and so on. And even if you sort of use English, right, it's structured English, then you're saying that there's universally preferable behavior called use English when you're talking to somebody who's, uh, who's speaking English, right? You don't get a lot of people who come back in Esperanto. So you can't logically say there's no such thing as universally preferable behavior any more than I can yell in your ear that there's no such thing as sound, right? The moment that I'm yelling in your ear, I'm deploying sound. I'm using sound to make my arguments. So I can't say there's no such thing as sound. The moment that I say either there is or there isn't universally preferable behavior, I'm accepting that there is such a thing. So, so once you establish that, then the question is, what is universally preferable behavior? And then you have to work on definitions that make sense logically and have the empirical test and so on, right? So if I say, well, there is uh, uh, there's no such thing as property, There's no such thing as property rights. Well, of course, the first property the right that I have is to myself. If I say to you there's no such thing as property rights, then I'm saying there's no possibility of ownership from, from any human being for anything, including their own body. But, of course, I'm using my own body. I'm using my vocal cords to tell you that there's no such thing as ownership. So I'm exercising ownership over my own body to tell you that there's no such thing as ownership, which is a complete contradiction. Similarly, if I say that stealing is right, then again i'm i'm performing a contradiction in my in my premise right so or i'm i'm embedding a contradiction if i say stealing is right then let's say i grab your wallet well i'm only going to grab your wallet if i can hold on to it if i knew the moment that i grabbed your wallet that somebody was going to just grab it from me i wouldn't bother so if i steal your wallet it's because i want to keep your wallet as my property to 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 pillage it and spend the money that's in it or whatever so if I'm stealing from you, I'm both saying that property rights exist, in other words, I want to keep the wallet that I'm stealing, but property rights don't exist, right. which is that you don't get to keep your wallet. So any theory which says stealing is good is immediately self-contradictory. And you could go on and on, and Lord knows I have, about these various things, but you can come up with pretty good definitions. Uh, of universally preferable behavior, and eh, people don't have to follow them uh, the same way that they don't have to put gas in their car. It's just that if they don't, there are certain consequences.
0: Right? Well, nobody, nobody's going to make them really. I mean, there's nothing in the sky that's going to, you know, strike right. out at them when they when they steal. So the
1: exactly, issue, exactly right. So, uh, but if you want to talk about ethics, it's sort of like if you want to talk about mathematics, you can't start off with two plus two equals green. I mean, you can, but just nobody's going to take you seriously. So, right. if you want to start talking about ethics then you have to have logically consistent definitions that uh, are valid in all times at all places. Otherwise, no sensible ethicist is going to take you seriously. And you can't oppose the existence of ethics without saying that there's universally preferable behavior, which is the definition of ethics. So if you just sort of throw uh, there is no is from the ought, but there are rational norms that any theory, whether it's scientific or mathematical or ethical or anything, has to follow has to follow in order to be taken with any kind of credibility. And that's where we really work with the ethical debate uh, at Free Debate Radio. It's kind of new, I think, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't want to make any sort of big claims here. Uh, it's new to me, right? And I've done a lot of reading in history and philosophy. But uh, I think it's a fairly new approach. So <laughs> don't look for it in the next issue of Scientific American. But it's something that I'm spending a fair amount of time trying to uh, spread around, of course.
2: So the issue is that uh, you can't, it's logically impossible to, to make the statement that ethics are subjective.
1: Right, because then you've said there's a preferential state uh in your mind which is to not believe that ethics are su- are, are objective, right? So that's a, that's again you you you've put forward a, an objective statement about preference. And exactly. since ethics are simply objective statements about preference for how human beings should behave, right. if you say uh, it's wrong totally and universally and objectively to believe that ethics are objective, then you've just contradicted yourself and you're not going to get anywhere, right?
0: Well, what about uh, what about I guess the distinction between relativism and subjectivism? I think re- what relativ- relativism says is that you ought to behave in a way as though there were no universal, universally preferable behaviors. But that, but what about what about somebody who just simply, you know, like the Wittgenstein, like pass over in silence? You know, the subjectivist who just who says that like any statement you make about morality is meaningless. Then he can't talk, right? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, then he's saying that uh, there is a universal statement of preferred behavior, which is that nobody should talk about preferred behavior as if it were (laughs) universal, right? Again, that's just a complete contradiction. The moment that he opens his mouth and says, you should or should not believe something, he's come up with a universal statement. And I have this debate with people quite a bit because it's a tough concept to get, at least it was for me, maybe everyone else finds it easier. But the moment that somebody says to me, you should not believe what you believe. They're deploying ethics, right? They're deploying a preferred state of behavior, of thinking, right? And they're comparing it not to something subjective, right? Like if I say I like ice cream, nobody's going to come up to me and say, you shouldn't like ice cream. (laughs) Maybe my dentist or whatever, right? But nobody's going to come up and say it is logically wrong for you to like ice cream, right? But at the moment that somebody opposes an ethical theory, they are saying, like in a universal way, rather than just "I don't like the font you used" or something. Right? Then they're, they're they're substituting another theory that is universal. So you just you can't conceivably argue with somebody without accepting certain things, right? Like the validity of the senses, uh, the the fact that I exist and you exist because you don't debate with a mirror, or at least I don't, right? And you have to accept that there's universally preferable behavior. There are some things that are just embedded in the very act of debating. That you just can't get away from, and of course, a lot of philosophers have spent a lot of mental sweat trying to pretend that those things can be gotten away from. But the logical fact is that they just can't.
0: Right. So the funny, funny thing is that a subjectivist, when he's trying to convince you of his position, he's pretty much implied in the whole discussion is you ought to be reasonable, which is why I'm trying to convince you of my position. Right. If he's saying it's there's reasonable.
1: no, there's no, you can't get an is from an ought. Then he's saying you ought not get an is from an ought. But an ought not is just another kind of ought, right? I mean, so, again, you, you, the moment you start debate you, you cannot say anything your whole life about these things, but then nobody cares because you're not part of the debate. The moment that you open your mouth, though, you have immediately bypassed the is-ought dichotomy, and you're saying that there is an ought, you ought not to believe I mean, But right. As soon as you've come up with a should, as soon as you've come up with a statement that you consider logically binding on someone else, you've got universal oughts. So.
3: So You, know, it's so like the you don't have
1: to be a mathematician, but if you claim to be a mathematician or you start debating numbers, you have to accept that they are, um, maybe not, they don't exist in the real world, but they're also not subjective, subject to logical laws and so on.
2: So the is-ought problem is itself a contradiction.
1: Well, the moment you talk about it, yes, right? The, I mean, if, again, if you don't say anything about it your whole life, but even then you're saying I ought not to say anything about the <laughs> is-ought problem, right?
2: It's—it's it's, The moment it's that you start impossible dialoguing it to with somebody, exist.
1: you're immediately saying, unless you're just saying I like jazz and you like blues, right, and who cares, right, and it's fine for conversation, it's not a philosophical debate. The moment that you try and say there's truth value that you should change your mind relative to, then you're saying there's objective truth, there's preferred yeah. behavior, truth is better than falsehood, you should believe what I'm saying because mm-hmm. it's truer than what you're saying. You're automatically in the realm of preferred behavior uh, and universally preferred behavior, which is ethics.
0: So but I think you made a statement earlier that kind of confused me. You said uh, when you're saying you can't derive an is from an ought, you're making... Uh, a statement about universally preferred behavior. But uh, what, let's say I said you can't, you can't make a car out of sticks. Uh, is that a prescription for universally preferable behavior? I mean, is it, is it, couldn't it just be a fact? A st- I mean, I don't, dispute with you, I don't dispute your conclusion. I just kind of uh, – sure, sure. I'm, I'm a little confused about, about that statement.
1: No, it's horribly confusing, and I, <laughs> I sort of try to do my best. But it is. Uh, there's lots of podcasts and, and articles on this. If you say to me, Steph, you can't make a car out of sticks – Right? And I don't make any jokes about bands, right? the cars and the sticks. Anyway, uh, if you say that to me, then you're, you're not saying you should not make cars out of sticks. You're just simply stating a fact. You can't make cars from a car from sticks. That's not universally preferable behavior. That's just a statement of fact. Like if I point and say that's a tree over there, and it is, right? then that's not universally preferable behavior. If I say human beings should tell the truth rather than lie, that's universally preferable behavior. So a simple statement of identification, of facts, and even of causality does not universalize unless you put a should in there.
2: Well, David Hume would argue that you, you can't get a not from an is is a fact. So what makes that a prescription?
1: Right. Th- that's exactly well, what my, my confusion yeah, is. Yeah, but if, if I say to you, you, if you say to me, um, there is such a thing as universally preferable behavior, which is an ought, right? Human beings ought to do X, Y, and Z. Right. If I say to you that is incorrect and you should not believe that, then I'm saying that universally it is better for you to believe things that are true than things that are false, and your thing is false and my thing is true, and so you should believe what, what I tell you, right? Because whatever, right, we reason through it. But I can't say that universal preference is invalid and then at the same time say you should reject your proposition that universal preferences are valid and it's universally preferable that you should do that again i've just backtracked and and totally shot my own argument in the foot so it certainly is true that you can't get an ought from an is but the moment that you start dealing with any kind of ought right you ought to kill you ought to tell the truth you ought to believe true things and not false things you ought to change your mind because your beliefs are irrational or whatever right there's no evidence then the, I'm sort of saying that there is such a thing as an ought. The moment I enter into the debate about oughts, I am accepting a whole bunch of oughts, right, right naturally. By,
0: by trying to convince, let's say, by trying to convince us about, the, about how the is ought, uh, I'm sorry, by trying to convince you that there is a problem with, with drawing an ought from an is, it's I'm saying, I'm saying implicitly you ought to be reasonable, like, just like the same problem yeah, yeah. with subjectivists.
1: Right, okay, exactly.
0: I, I see your point of view, yeah.
1: <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, that was just too easy. Let's start again. <laughs> Let's start again. <laughs> well, uh,
0: another thing that I find really interesting that does tie into the Isot problem is the analytic-synthetic dichotomy, which uh, I've heard broken down in several ways. I'm not sure I was exactly satisfied by, uh, I guess, Leonard Peikoff's approach to it. Uh, what's your take on that one?
1: You know, this is a technical term that I sort of get and then don't get. So I can't claim to be an expert on analytic synthetic. I, I, I'd have to read up on it again. I've okay, read, well, uh, I, I have read Leonard Peacock's book on objectivism, but this was about I don't know eight years ago or something. So if you if you know the definitions, I'd be happy to work with them. But uh, I, I can't pop them off my head.
0: Well, I'll work with you here. i mean, pretty much. Uh, this started off as I guess as Hume's fork, which is that you know you either have statements that are deductively true, statements that are. Uh, contingently true, or and everything else in between is nonsense. And David Hume used this to undermine causality and all these things. So pretty much, uh, in, the, in the analytic camp, you have things like uh, "bachelor is an unmarried man." It's something that's analytically true. It's deductively true because it contained in the definition of bachelor is unmarried man. So
1: when you say a like a tautology, right? Like
0: a tautology. It's yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Analytic statements are tautologies. Now, on the other hand, you have synthetic statements, which are um, ice melts at hundred degrees, which, by his argument, is contingent because it could be some other way. It's testable, right? It's testable, or or some in some other degree. But I guess I guess to have a meaningful discussion, you would have had to have been acquainted with this. But it's uh, this is this is kind of like what's used to undermine uh, the in between principles, like events have a cause, because you can't put them in either camp. You can Can you? Can you prove that events have a cause? No. Right. Can you? Uh, and if you say simply that an event is that which has a cause, you're simply uttering a tautology that says nothing about the universe. And I think what right. Leonard Pajkov accurately pointed out was that the problem with this dichotomy is that uh, if you say something that you can prove to be true, you're not saying anything meaningful. And if you're trying to say something about the universe, you can't prove it. You're trying right. to say something meaningful, you can't prove it. So I guess the analytic-synthetic dichotomy is a, is a means by which um, uh, philosophy is is... Is made to be impractical and, and meant to say nothing, or meant to prove that knowledge is futile, or for for in some way or another. And I think this was also used by other philosophers like Kant and uh, I don't know right. I other mystical philosophers.
1: This this is also sorry to interrupt, but this has also shown up in the a uh, particularly ferocious Ron Paul debate that I've had recently, where people say, you know, when I say that, um, uh, you know, for 150 years people have been trying to make the state smaller by working within the state, and it hasn't worked then people come back and say, well, you can't prove that, because the state could be even bigger now if they hadn't done what they did, right? And of course, they're perfectly correct. I mean, I I can't prove that, because there's no alternate universe that you can compare these things to, right? But so, to some degree, when you look at somebody, and this comes down to, to things like happiness as well and in life as well, right? You can only compare, in a sense, the results relative to the original aims, right? So, uh, you know, when just to not to reopen that debate, but just to give an example of how you can work around that kind of stuff. I, if somebody says, I want to drive from New York to Detroit, and they end up driving into the Atlantic Ocean, you can say that they did not achieve their aim, right? And therefore, there's something wrong with their methodology or their map is <laughs> backwards or, you know, whatever, right? They thought they had a bond car that could go into water. But uh, so you, you can compare at least these things to, to relatively stated goals, right? So everybody has the goal, say, sort of like, I want to be happy, right? As Aristotle says, it's the one thing that we want, which we don't want in order to get something else, right? We want money to buy things to be happy. We want love to be happy. But, but happiness is the one thing that we choose in and of and only for itself, right? So if everybody wants to be happy. So unhappy people must be doing something not quite right. It's the same way that unhealthy people, assuming it's not purely genetic, must be doing something not quite right so there is a way i think of of being able to at least compare the results of things to people's goals and desires and see where there is a mismatch or right? people like to avoid pain and they're not masochists and so if you're in pain you must be doing something kind of wrong right so there is that way I think, of, of at least comparing the results of things to people 's stated intentions and looking for deviations from those. The fundamental one being being sort of happiness and efficacy, so I think there's ways of working within that paradigm at least I hope i haven 't gone totally off topic, but no uh, I think
0: you 're there you're still there uh, uh, I think that ties in very closely to the fact that I guess people expect that proof is something that 's like you know it 's bi directional that you have both. The cause and the effect, and you know the effect, and the, all, all the possible effects and all the possible causes. But the problem is there's no way of making any... I mean, it kind of undercuts empiricism to say that, because there's no way of making any inference without simply looking at results uh, right. of some, in some way or another. And uh, I guess this ties into, like, a... Uh, I guess I kind of lost my train of thought here, but...
1: Uh, well, there's no way... I'm sorry to interrupt, but it certainly does tie into... Um, uh, the problem with, with this kind of stuff, if you say, well, we can't measure anything except by its effect, is that it means you, you're really going to have a tough time per- using philosophy as a predictor, right? Then it's just going to be something that's going to be a posteriori, right, after the fact, looking backwards. And then if, after the fact of looking backwards, if you look at something like history, you can't isolate all the variables. You can't say this caused that, caused the other, right? So you get into debates about, I don't know, like Pearl Harbor, right? And you say, well, uh, the reason that Japan attacked America was because America placed this embargo, thus cutting off... The uh, supply of raw materials to Japan, which caused Japan to want to invade Manchuria and China, which caused more embargoes, which caused an eventual, because the embargo was enforced through the Navy, caused Japan to want to attack the U.S. at Pearl Harbor. Now, you can't prove that, right? I mean, you can say these things seem to sort of logically follow, but you, you, can't, you can't prove that. Or if you could prove it, it would, have owned, would only be in the past, and maybe you wouldn't find it relevant to what's going on uh, in Iraq and any of future attacks. But uh, I think that, that, that you can find these kinds of things. You can find trends without isolating all the variables. You just have to have enough cases, right? If you have somebody in a control group uh, for a medical study, you can't control every variable. You can't control everything they eat. You can't control all their genetics. But you can still find patterns that are worthwhile from an empirical standpoint.
0: I guess, okay, what I was going to say related to that on the, the fact of res- on, on the issue of results is that Let's say you're at the beginning of time and, like, suddenly you suddenly appear there. There's no way you can make any inferences without having seen a relation, a causal relationship occur before. So, there's no way that I can infer, for example, that small government leads to big government without having seen something, some sort of fact related to the nature of government in the first place. So, inferences go both ways, I I guess. So, I guess that's what I'm saying that you can have a, you can construct a logical kind of like a logical, quote, a priori basis, like kind of like what von Mises did of, of what you think an economy is going to do. But the only way, reason you were able to do that in the first place was because you observed results in the first place, which is like another, another school of economic thought, which is look at the results and reverse engineer them.
1: Right, right. But I mean, that's the that's the bidirectionality of the scientific method. So you, uh, you, uh, you get evidence in through the senses, and then you conceptualize, about uh, the rules or laws that might make sense of that sensual evidence, and then you create a theory that it's abstracted from sensual evidence, and then you go and validate that theory relative to more testing, which then may help refine I mean, it's a bi-directional thing, right? And so Einstein comes up with the theory of relativity, and then he says, well, you know, you've got to sail out, and you've got to look at this, um, this uh, solar eclipse, and then if the light of the stars is bent at this angle as it comes around the sun, then this is going to be proof for it. So again, he, he observes things in the world, and then he comes up with theories which then are further validated. I mean, it's a bi-directional thing, right? And I think that, is, uh, that sort of is, is a tough thing because it's a very long-term process. It's a tough thing for people to absorb within their own minds because it's a very, very long-term process.
0: Uh, it's the presence of that bi-directionality and, and, and the resulting imperfection of the knowledge that results from it is the is really what I think is at the core of the analytic-synthetic dichotomy because what the analytic-synthetic dichotomy is saying is that, well, you can't have perfect knowledge because you can't... It's, it's always bi-directional. But... Uh, then I guess philosophically, the breakdown of the analytic synthetic dichotomy is that when you make a synthetic statement like ice melts at 100 degrees, you're, the only reason that that may be false is because you've misspecified the definition of ice. If you were to fully specify the conditions that a block of ice were in and uh, the conditions that... Um, all its physical properties, the only logical result possible in the universe is that it melts at 100 degrees. And I think that's maybe what kind of, what the analytic-synthetic dichotomy fails to recognize, that the only reason that something could ever be contingent is if it's misspecified or if it's not completely specified.
1: I think, I mean, I think that's right. And there's, there's, to me, a sort of emotional level to, to this kind of debate as well, which I'm not going to claim is something that I can prove rationally, but it's like, um, you know bad guys are pretty certain, right? I mean, this is sort of the annoying thing about, I don't mean you, but I mean about philosophers in general, uh, particularly ethical philosophers. You know, uh, people like Hitler and Mao and Stalin, they were pretty certain about what they wanted to do, right? They were pretty certain about the sort of, quote, rightness or, or justice at their cause. And it's sort of like we, we've got a cancer, right? And the cancer is aggressive, and the cancer doesn't stop, and the cancer is certainly certain that what it wants to do is keep cancering, you know, doing its cancer thing. And we got a whole bunch of oncologists who are like, well, you know, I'm not sure about the philosophy of medicine, and I'm not sure about this or that or the other. And, of course, the problem is that the bad guys in the world are very, very certain of what it is they want to do. George Bush uh, seems uh, very certain, as does, you know, other dictators around the world. You know, I don't know that Vladimir Putin sort of sits up night wondering if he's doing the right thing. I think he just goes and does his thing, right? But, unfortunately, um, philosophers tend to, you know, gnaw their fingernails and bite their cuticles about the truth and certainty and so on and sure there's stuff that's that's tough at the edge but you know the non-aggression principle i'm down with that like i got no problems with that i got no hesitations about that and uh, i think that we need to be a certain and more assertive not necessarily aggressive but much more assertive about keeping pointing out the gun in the room backing people into corners if necessary right or you know try it in a positive way but if it doesn't work you know it's okay to get a little tough uh, because there 's lots of bad people in the world who want to do a lot of bad things, and they 're very certain and i just i 've never really liked the idea that, that only the bad guys get to be certain in the world and yeah, there are some challenges at the edge of human knowledge, and there are some areas where property rights may not be perfect you know like you 're hanging outside somebody's uh, on a flagpole out somebody 's outside somebody 's uh, apartment. can you kick in the window and go in rather than drop to your death? Sure, you know, the once in 10,000 lifetimes that that might happen to you, uh, that's fine. But, you know, we can be absolutely certain about some really, really core stuff about, you know, the rape, murder, theft, and assault are all bad, uh, that self-defense isn't really that ambiguous because if you have a free society, you won't need it that much. And I think that we can really power down about the 90 to 95 percent of stuff that we're really certain about and not get involved in that other stuff, like how many... Uh, You know, how many social services can I take before I violate my ideals and so on, right? I mean, they're interesting, but there's a lot more stuff to do because morally I think we're kind of in the middle of a bit of a plague, you know, like there's a lot of bad ideas in the world. And I think that once we get to those questions, the world will be so much of a better place that we'll have done our job already.
0: Well, I was going to ask you for closing thoughts, but that really sounded a lot like closing thoughts. But do you have anything else to say?
1: No, listen, I think I've chewed everyone's ear (laughs) off long enough. I really do appreciate the opportunity. And uh, of course, it's a good day to celebrate uh, the freedoms that we still have and to rededicate ourselves to preserving and expanding them.
0: Well, do you like fireworks? Do you think that they're uh, wasteful or that they're a fun, rational way of
1: having, <laughs> having a good time? I think they're great fun. <laughs> I think they're great fun. All right. What about beer and fireworks? Beer and fireworks, I think, not necessarily in combination if you're the one actually setting off the fireworks, but overall, a good thing.
0: All right. Well, thank you for calling. Uh, I, call, I mean, well, thank you for calling in, and thank you for being a guest on our show for such a long time. In fact, in fact I think this is a record-long show.
2: Uh, we've never gone on. It's definitely a record in terms of quality of content.
0: Uh, <laughs> oh, well, I'm not going to let my co-hosts hear that one, and I'm glad that <laughs> the CD... And The reason we're stopping is because the CD ran out of space, so I'm glad yeah. that's not going
1: on the record, and I
0: hope they're not listening right now because they're going to be very mad at that comment. But
1: uh, Well, thank you very much, and to listen, uh, just send me the MP3 link and I'll post it on the board and talk it up in the podcast.
0: All right, thank you very much for your call, and uh, have a happy 4th of July, even though you're Canadian.
1: <laughs> okay, take care.
0: Take care.